0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. Before we get started with this episode, I just wanted to remind everyone listening that this podcast and others are also on YouTube, so you can click the link in the description and subscribe to the channel. We also have a new series of videos only on YouTube and Facebook of Nick and I responding to deconstruction TikToks, so go check that out and enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt, and I'm here with Pastor Nick, and hey we're back with uh, part two of this. What is deconstruction as it applies to faith in Jesus? Um, this is this is part two. So the first uh, the, the first one we talked about some of the more introductory questions. Um, some some of the historical references to deconstructionism or I guess you said you wanted to call it deconstruction not deconstructionism right
1: yeah deconstructionism like is a you know people talk about that as a as a subset of postmodernism, as an expression of poststructuralism, it tend to ha- tends to have a like technical definition within like literary criticism and stuff like that. Whereas mm-hmm. deconstruction as this thing people are doing with their Christian faith or religion is, mm-hmm. I, hopefully that'll keep it separate in people's minds. Because otherwise people will be like, that's not what de- what you guys are talking about. Isn't what deconstructionism is, yeah. which you know, <laughs> it's kind of, kind of right.
0: Um, yeah. 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 True. Yeah. So uh, we're talking about people. I mean, people who are deconstructing their faith. What does that mean? How is it happening? And um, and there's a lot to talk about here. And so this is part two. And we're gonna kind of start where. With some of the things that we were talking about in part one, um, the 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 first question that we have here is what are the what are the most popular ways people are deconstructing their faith? And we did talk about this a lot last time, but we, we wanted to start here and then move forward from this. Um, and so, so Nick, you can. Yeah, I think it's I think
1: it's important just to recognize things so people see them when they're facing them. Right. So there's there's three things that come up as the reasons people give you say, well, why? Why have you lost faith in Christian faith if they're not going to say because the I thought the church was bad or I got hurt at the church or the church? So Usually yeah. I, I think the institution of the church is often um, a big, a big Uh, target. But I Mm -hmm. think also um, one is, is deconstructing the morality of Christian sexual ethics Mm -hmm. um, as like in contrast to LGBTQ ideology. So there's like a certain sexual ethic out there that is, um, that is part of expressive individualism. That's like, you should be able to do whatever you want with your sexuality because your sexuality is the most foundational thing about you, a la Freud. Mm -hmm. And so any restriction on that is going to make it so you can't be happy. Being happy is the most important thing. Right. So restrictions on sexuality are wrong, especially if they seem to be picking on a minority that is LGBTQ people with non-normative sexual orientations. That's really cruel. Right. And Mm. so there's two things relative to that. One is they can't make sense of the Christian sexual ethic. They don't have the tools or they choose not to. Mm. And in addition to that, they feel like it's unjust that it's picking on a minority. Right. And they want injustice is like in some ways, for modern, especially younger people, whether or not something seems just is their test for truth,
2: hmm.
1: right? So they're like, "Oh, if, it's th- if it seems unjust to me, it it's wrong and therefore false," hmm. right? Now that's a really really bad way to think, I think, <laughs> and I could defend that maybe in another podcast. But that that's how people feel, yeah. right? As they they're like, "Oh, that can't be right," and so that yeah. happens with the sexual ethics. So so that's one of the reasons why you see in more secularistic progressive ideology when they're pushing on people's faith this is where they start this is why lgbtq plus stuff is way out of proportion to the percentage of the population and why no, it's yeah. so central to the ideology of um irrelig- irreligious people because yeah. it holds this this like a marker as like the the fulcrum lever point for everything related to ethics especially in sexuality does that make sense
2: yeah yeah
1: so and I've, I've I've just seen this dozens and dozens and dozens of times. The thing that starts troubling students and the thing that they don't want to face publicly, the last thing that they want to face publicly, like at school or at college or something like that, is mm-hmm. to say they believe that there are constraints on sexuality mm-hmm. and that those are ethically for all people. Yeah. Right. Um, because they're going to come up against this and they're going to take it right in the teeth by yeah. – their college, their peers, their whatever, because of right. it. It's terrifying. So the the second one is contrasting Christian spirituality, usually the worst forms of it you can imagine, with what is what are the current psychological theories of healing and self-help.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So there's gonna be memes and influencers and psychologists and stuff, and they're gonna put out all these like ideas of like what is psychologically healthy. And Mm -hmm. then they'll contrast that with some of the, some of the worst examples of Christian spirituality, but sometimes they are real examples of Christian spirituality, just misunderstood.
0: Yeah.
1: And I've seen that on the very popular level of like people just kind of like sneering at the Christian faith to Mm -hmm. people with PhDs who have really sophisticated versions of this, Mm -hmm. who think that Christianity is going to lead people to worse psychological health rather than better. Yeah. Even though people who go to church uh, once a week or more, yeah. on the whole have better psychological health in virtually every way you can measure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and 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 then you do have a new one written down here. I don't think you had this last time, yeah. the integration of science and faith.
1: Yeah, I think for a lot of people that's that is also the case. People want to think of themselves as scientific, yeah. rational, modern people and they mm-hmm. either assume there's a huge problem between faith and science. Um partly because, you know, literature takes years to catch up with Rumor. So there's a lot of great books out there now about how there isn't really a a divide between faith and science, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but there are versions of faith and science that really do feel like they're opposed. The main one being whether or not evolutionary theory is the sufficient explanation for Mm -hmm. all of life and whether Christianity or faith uh, can include it. I think that that's the question I think really – stumbles a lot of people because evolutionary theory is ubiquitous now like it used to be that like you know you could question it and people were like well uh, you know like yeah there's some evolution maybe there maybe there's some limits okay. um it's gotten more of a hegemony now where like it is the thing it is the secular yeah. religion of origins mm-hmm. and so um yeah it's a it's kind of a thing so like you can't you can't say well i'm not sure even now yeah. Or you're just a stupid idiot. And I right. saw that with my, like my oldest daughter, when she went on campus, she took anthropology her first year as a intro class. And she mm-hmm. just talked about, and, and my daughter was actually sympathetic to the secular professor here because her faith is e- either not happening right now or whatever. But she was, but the guy just was like completely, she, she was like, I could tell he, she was, she was like, dad, I could tell he was doing apologetics. Like with my background in the church, like mm-hmm. when I was taught like how to defend my faith, a good yeah. bit of my anthropology lectures were him doing anthropology apologetics for evolution, specifically uh-huh. attacking churches and talking about stupid Christians that didn't know anything. And that was a good yeah. part of her freshman anthropology class. And so it's fed into by the professorial class, but it's also yeah. just part of like YouTube and like yeah stuff like that. Yeah,
0: about why religious yeah.
1: people are idiots and why you're an yeah. idiot if you are one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Those would be considered the main, the three main ways that people are that i guess the three main the gateway drugs into deconstructing your faith yeah,
1: if you ask them what's the mental structure like why what did why did you give up on it what was the thing you couldn't sort out yeah. if they don't say the church was a bad place they'll usually say one of those three yeah and oh, i yeah. say that i say that because as believers we need to have then exceptionally or disproportionately good answers to those sets of questions Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not, not necessarily because these are great objections, but Mm -hmm. because like ministering means meeting people where they're at and helping with them with the questions they have, even if you don't think they're great questions, they're the questions those people have. It's like me deciding in counseling sessions, what we're going to talk about. Well, no, I got to start with what they want to talk about, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, one thing I was talking to somebody about yesterday was that it seems like Christian, I was talking about Christian media companies, but I think this could be said for churches and just Christian groups in general and different denominations. I think what has happened instead of them really trying to answer these questions or have conversations about these things, a lot of them have just created their own little echo chamber where everybody agrees with each other on the Christian doctrine that they believe in. And then they just bash people who, think that in any like anybody who questions their faith because of the, uh sexual because of like the LGBTQ ideology or because of science and faith they don't really ever answer the questions that surround those things mm-hmm. a lot of christians end up just being like the earth was created in 6 days and on the 7th day god rested and that's just how it is and the bible says yep. it and it's like i mean i agree with that but I, you also want to know why, and you want to have enough understanding, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think a lot of Christians have just isolated themselves from these questions rather than actually tried to answer them over the past 50 or 60 years. And I think it's led to a lot of people my age walking away from their faith because the Christians kind of cow, cow were cowards and ran away from the problems. I don't know if, you, yeah, if you've seen this. Thing. I think that that's <laughs> partially true. Who have attacked them too, like have yeah. a- attacked the problems.
1: Yeah I, yeah. I don't know how the Lord would judge that because I think on some level that's true. On another level, just do being a Christian and trying to live a life of love and obedience to the Lord each day is has enough trouble of its own. Yeah. Right. And people normally absorb answers to big questions in their culture. So like one, I think one of the things that people don't like, I was talking to somebody recently, I don't remember who it was right now. And I was talking about how younger people are, have struggled really mightily with institutions. Right. Yeah. And they were like, okay, is it the young people who can't accept that institutions are good or have our institutions sucked in this sense that they, they can't get their head screwed on straight and agree on what we have as a culture. Mm-hmm. Right. Because from one things that I was thinking about this, I was like, you know, you're right. For most of the history of the world, human beings have lived in, in fairly stable cultures. Yeah. We, like what your neighbors believed was right or wrong was like hegemic. Like everybody believed yeah. the same thing. Yeah. And now we have all these technologies. And then we live in a city where not everybody believes the same thing. Like when yeah. in Madison, people are like, well, in Madison, we believe. But, well, that's not true. You right. can't say hardly anything that everybody mm-hmm. in Madison believes. Even like that, you shouldn't loot other people's stores, or that you should get justice if things are bad, right? Like, it's just these things we like. We just don't agree. I mean, maybe you shouldn't kill people, but like I,
0: I don't know. No, I I talked to Andrea about that that, like a couple days ago. I was like, I don't think even about like murder. Like usually, that's like the uh, one of the fundamental pillars of a civilization of like just a don't murder. And and I guess that has has changed.
1: Well, I mean, I I mean, I think we have a good bit of agreement on it still. But it's it's right. amazing how on the fringes people are like, yeah, but they shouldn't go to jail for very
0: long, or like, right. you know, or with, with babies. I mean,
1: yeah, 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 who, yeah. yeah. You know, who gets to live and like, yeah, we, right. right. So anyway, th- what what I'm saying is is that like when when we say the church didn't do a great job, mm-hmm. I, I don't think anybody does a great job when a culture changes like almost entirely what it believes and it does it pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then it doesn't end up in full agreement, but it's, it's in like this, like mixture of disagreement. Yeah. And th- I think that's very destabilizing for people and they don't know what to yeah. do. And most yeah. pastors like they're not, they're not apologists. They're not these like brilliant academic, like people who can do this stuff. And in a lot of cases, people who are really smart academics, they don't have the grit in their guts to fight. And so they do a lot of appeasing, frankly. And it's not, it's, and it's, it's personality temperament based mostly because yeah. a lot, most academics, if you're a good academic, you're really, you're highly curious. Right. And people who are really curious and they want to learn new things, they don't like to fight. They yeah. like to learn. And so, like, I, like, I personally would much rather like explore things in an interesting kind of way and ex, as expansively as possible than like yeah. fight about what is right. The only reason I do it is because I think it's necessary. And I don't think enough people are doing it. Yeah.
0: You know, do you think that there's anything to the, and th- this is something that I've talked to friends about and people, my age, a- as it relates to the uh, integration of science and faith, my big issue is not that there are Christians who are, I mean, th- there are young Christians who want to like kind of, learn how they can still agree with evolution or the big bang and also be a Christian. Like, I think that it's a difficult thing. I -hmm. guess my issue is like changing the biblical, the meanings of the biblical literature, the meaning of the words, the meanings of of things that have meant one thing for, you know, thousands of years. Now, all of a sudden just completely changes. And I don't know. You know, if you can do that with Genesis, why can't you do that with the gospel? You know, why can't you do that with the gospel of, of Luke or something like that and just start changing the meanings of things. I, I guess that's that's where I think and that's where deconstruction starts with some people. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, this gets back to what we talked about last time about the difference between deconstruction and reconceptualization. Right. Like um, there are people. So t- t- take origins for a minute there. Right. Um, so there are some people who will say, who learn in church that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, right? And they think of that fairly, literally like 24 hour periods and, you know, probably happened, I don't know, 10, 12,000 years ago. Right. And so they go, okay, well, and then they bump into the theory of evolution. They're like, okay, the earth is millions of years old and the universe is 4 billion. Right. Okay. So do those integrate. Right. Now, at one level, you would want them to inquisitively ask the question, okay, both of my interpretations could be wrong. Maybe the scientific interpretation is wrong. Maybe my theological interpretation is wrong. Right. But the truth okay. is true. Right. And also, are are we intended to just conceptualize these two things differently? Am I not supposed to think of the Genesis narrative as, quote, scientific literature? And if I'm not, then what does that mean? Or am I just playing a game? Right. Like there are questions that you want people to ask. And in theory, answering those questions could strengthen somebody and help them reconceptualize their faith. Right. right. So they could say, oh, like, for example, St. Augustine believe that God created the universe in in an instant, like one instant, Mm -hmm. but told the story as the story of a week, like playing out the different dynamics of it. So as to overlap God's creative work with our creative work, because our creative work happens in our work week, right? So Mm -hmm. God parallels like his creation and tells it as the story of a work week and then lays it over us. So we would understand what it means to be an image bearer who works and rests like God, and who does creative yeah. work. And then that's what dominion means and so on. Right. So you're, yeah. that you're supposed to understand it in that metaphorical relationship, not because Augustine thought the world was created billions of years ago and things have evolved yeah. over hundreds of millions of years, but because he actually thought it was less time than six days. Right. Yeah. So there's, there is a tradition of Christian bishops and like Christian theologians who have believed Genesis one wasn't literal. Right. Yeah. Now mm-hmm. that doesn't mean it isn't literal. It mm-hmm. just means that like, you know, people have thought that before Darwin, so yeah. if you say Christians have only ever thought the world was something other than created in six 24-hour periods to, to handle Darwin as a post hoc defensive maneuver, that's not really true. Right. Right. Lots of Christians so, have interpreted the first chapters of Genesis allegorically or mythologically before the fundamentalist modernist controversy and, and liberals yeah. did it. Right. So in that sense, I think like – and so you could see like a young person like learning that and learning some other things and being like, okay, well, maybe – Maybe Genesis 1 is like a kind of literature that's meant to tell us things that are literally true, but yeah. isn't a literalistic genre or kind of literature. And so we're supposed to we're supposed to interpret it hmm. in a certain kind of way, right? Now, that has its own problems, too, because then when does that stop? When right. does Genesis right. get more historically literalistic? Is it the story of Abraham? Yeah. Is it after the flood? Is it the story of Babel? Right? That's There's a, a lot of people that think that— <laughs> between Abraham and Babel is where you should have your cutoff, but the but the signal in the text itself is kind of weak right like Genesis doesn't yeah. seem to signal that right yeah other than that there's this like this generation section this what's called the Toledo or the generation section mm-hmm. that they think it splits up that way right I mean I don't really know
0: interesting yeah I know well, that if you add, literally- I know
1: if you literally add up all the years in the Bible then and you don't think there's any gaps then the and you then you date abraham to 1400 bc then the whole earth has to be 6000 years old yeah or less than 6000 years old right? right and i mean there's cave paintings in france that are supposed to be at least 27000 years old made by humans
0: yeah but they do say that uh that that those are often carbon dated and i mean there's some evidence that carbon dating's only accurate back 6 7000 years i mean that that's Mm-hmm. that's been
1: talked about yeah too. no l- listen i i have heard of n- a number of the young earth stuff and some of the stuff i find intriguing uh like yeah. the like uh, genetic um degradation that the argument from the guy who taught at stanford um i forget his name right now that like our our genetic is actually degrading not beginning getting better and so oh, yeah if you track that then we're, we're gonna have yeah. more and more genetic problems I, i'm not sure if that's right um uh, sure. are we still there's still a lot we have to learn about genetics and how they might self repair or have epigenetical effects, but but like yeah. the, that, the thing is like you would want the Christian to be like open minded in the right sense, yeah. but also faithful to the work of Christ and what God has revealed about mm-hmm. Himself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Also, but that's that the thing is, Andy, that's really hard to do, and a lot for a lot of younger people, they don't even get serious about their faith mm-hmm. sometimes ever. The right, like they're they're just kind of like drifting along. And when you're drifting along, you don't think about stuff. You don't pick these things up.
0: Right. Well, where's the I mean, like, what's the, the core or the root, I guess, of, of all of this? Because w- one of the things that I've found to be interesting is that young people don't seem to recognize whether we're talking about evolution or Darwinism or or the, uh, the sexual revolution or any of these things. It feels like young Christians don't ever recognize the thing that I think is, is f- holds some weight and it's kind of obvious is that our uh, society has gone down a, a more, um, just it's gone down a, a negative path, at least over my lifetime. Like I can remember when I was a little kid and the way that people in uh, in like in politics and and uh, in the society kind of interacted with each other in a more positive way, in a more like unified way. There are things that we agreed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now, you know, tw- 20 years later, 15 years later or whatever, I, I I see how like all of those things that I grew up with, where Democrats and Republicans could get along and things like that have completely Mm -hmm. been destroyed. I guess my question is like, at what point do you stop mixing a society's ideas about life and humanity in with the Bible? Like, when has a society gone too far? You know, does that make sense? Like, for me, there's a lot of evidence. It's like we read that book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh-huh. That seemed to me like to be a bunch of evidence that we are going in the wrong direction as far as how we think about human beings and how we think about philosophy and, and political theory and things like that. And uh-huh. yet there's a lot of Christians who are still just trying to cram that in to their Christianity. And I, I, th- uh-huh. I guess like, where do you when do you stop? At what point do you have to say, OK, we can't do this anymore as a Christian church or we're going to lose everything that we that we once thought was true. We're going to lose the whole gospel. We're going to lose it all. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I think that every, I I don't know that you can go, you can have an either or when it comes to being a reformer or being an integrationist. Like, so, right. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a strong Christian impulse towards integrationism where like, you have to find touchstones in your culture and the people you're talking to and saying, OK, Christian faith integrates with this. So Acts 17 is sort yeah. of the historic example of Paul on Mars Hill in, um in Athens, arguing with the philosophers and like finding touchstones between what they believed and what was true yeah. in the gospel. But at yeah. some point, he says God you know, sent his son and raised him from the dead. And at that point, a lot of the sophisticated people said this guy is a seed picker, meaning he doesn't understand philosophy. He doesn't really understand like how everything goes together. He's got like one idea and he's like a chicken, like walking along, picking up a seed there, picking up a seed there, picking up a seed there. Like if you don't believe what the world believes at some point, that's what they're going to think about you, that you're a seed picker that like, you know, you're agreeing with them on certain things, but not really, you don't really buy into the whole worldview. And that's because that's true. We don't buy into the uh, whole worldview, I mean, but that's because we think they're seed pickers. That they're yeah. going through all these like sort of humanistic ideas and secularistic and well ideas, and they're like they're most the thing is most people are seed pickers. That's that that idea isn't contrast is contrasted with like a philosopher who loves wisdom and understands is trying to understand everything and how it integrates. Yeah. You know, most people Dude, just ha, don't have anything like
0: the capacity to be a philosopher. That's one of my favorite parts, sections of Acts uh, when he's in Athens, because I think I think it teaches. I mean, yeah, maybe they call him a seed picker, but I I felt like Paul was doing pretty good um, in his in his apologetics or his arguments against the philosophers and kind of integrating what they thought. That was one of the the reasons why one of the passages that I looked at when thinking about the uh, what I want Optive to be is is that like, yeah. like, I think that that, I, mean, I like that yeah. long,
1: a lot. Yeah. And you can see like in another Greek city, like Corinth, when he writes to the Corinthians in chapter nine, he says he becomes all things to all people. So by any means possible, he might save some. Yeah. So he's always trying to make connections with people. Right. But yeah. at the same time, in the first couple of chapters of first Corinthians, he's like, listen, what we preach, the secular mind can't even understand right? Yeah. Like, the worldly man can't even comprehend it because it's spiritually discerned and there has to be a work of the spirit by which they actually comprehend its validity. Right. That is, that is what he's saying is he's saying there's an intuitive process in which somebody realizes that the whole shape of what they believe about the universe has to flip. Right. And to do that, it's, it's more than just like a few reasonings. Like you have to, you have to, experience something right. emotionally and mentally, this like, wait, this whole thing has to flip. And he's like, that—that okay. that is a mysterious thing that I believe happens by the Holy Spirit himself. But that doesn't mean you don't go into the Areopagus and argue with people and try yeah. to help them see, you know, and listen. But part of it is like, I, I, I do find secular knowledge often really enlightening Especially mm-hmm. when people are being honest and using the scientific method. Like there's a lot of stuff we learn mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. people who don't believe in Jesus at all because they are doing things that are acquiring knowledge. Yeah, And so there are always touch points, right? But like <laughs> yeah. when those touch points are their mythologies and mm-hmm. their superstructures of like replacement belief, which like yeah. I would put LGBTQ ideology in there. I would put certain forms of uh, of medicalized psychological
0: views in there. Well, one um, example that, that you and I have talked about, it's I started reading this book called Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, uh-huh. and it's like one of the most popular books in American history. It's one of the most sold books. In, in Among the world. libertarians, and, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I started reading it and I was like, this is the most amazing book I've ever read in my life like the and so she she's a proponent of objectivism and she's a libertarian and she like hates the government and she writes this story and I'm not totally done with it because it's a huge book but I so quickly started to grasp on to what she was saying and think of this as like a like this this is a biblical like these things align with the bible and come to find out you know you told me she's well some of them don't and she was a super immoral person who was like having affairs and like that's where all this stuff was coming from and 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 i'm like okay what the crap because i i totally bought into it and i can see how somebody can get into whether it's some of these psychological things or the or the sexual ethics stuff and you and you listen to it and you're so prone to being like Th- this has to be true. like like objectivism has to be true, you know what I mean and mm-hmm. in some ways it is and it makes a lot of it makes a lot of sense, especially right. when it's
1: contrasted with certain things. Yeah. So if I remember right, Rand came from the Soviet bloc. she like was born in one of the communist countries that was like wreathed in lies. And in okay. completely unworkable government. And so like she saw yeah. that and she had right. that insight. She's like, this is terrible. But her objectivism went so far as to be so individualistic that you could treat anybody however you wanted. There were no such thing right. as like, like marriage or like commitments that transcended yeah. you. Right? right. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it, I mean, in some ways she was a seed picker. Like she got a hold yeah. of one idea and drove it as far as it could go, which yeah. was interesting But like you become a really shallow person if you're like, oh, yeah, that's the whole that's the answer. And I think what happened
0: to her. Right. She was so cynical. I mean, the book is really cynical in a lot of ways. Um, It looks at like it looks at greed as a virtue. It says that greed is like the greatest virtue. And that's what kind of drives the economy. And while in some ways that that it's not a virtue, but it does help drive a capitalistic economy for sure. Mm-hmm. But you would say self-interest does, I guess. Uh, yeah. Self, self-interest. self You can period. have
1: interests as a yeah. self that aren't harmful
0: to right. other people, like yeah. feeding your family, for example. Right. Yeah. And that's,
1: that's one of the reasons why I'd never encourage people to read Rand because um, <laughs> Smith is better. Like we're just reading Adam Smith on yeah. how economies function and what they mean. Like, yeah. I don't think that Rand is, is any better than Smith. I think that she's more reactive to the Soviet questions that were happening in the 50s mm-hmm. through the 80s in a major part of her adult life. And I think Atlas Shrugged was an attempt to push back on the socialistic impulse, right? Yeah. So if you if you take Atlas Shrugged or other writings of hers as a pushback on mm-hmm. European socialism, both Western and Eastern European socialism during mm-hmm. the 50s to the 90s, let's say, then I think, hey, that's a great tool. And she's right about that. Yeah. But I also I also think that the world that she wants to create, in which everybody only has individualistic relationships with each other, is inhuman and definitely not Christian.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. And you can feel it. And I think the reason why she's more attractive to read uh, is because she does it as a story. Well, you can say like
1: F you to the socialists and then you can be an egoist. right? Right. And so like. You don't, so you can like do drugs and have sex with whoever you want and all that crap, which is, I mean, that's yeah. what Aldous Huxley said. The sixties, like he's like, listen, or now yeah, it was all, yeah, he's like, listen, the reason we love the sixties and all this kind of crap, and Atlas Shrugged would fall in that, is it told us we could have sex with who we wanted to take whatever drugs we wanted, yeah, right, we we could just be, do what right. we wanted for ourselves, and Christianity right. would like comes <laughs> in and like agrees with fighting socialism in its in the ways right. in which it putrefies always goes bad but it, yeah. it, then it it doesn't turn around and then it turns around and says look but you do have obligations to each other yeah there right. are interhuman obligations that are objective given by god and part of your nature and human mm. beings cannot flourish in a world of merely economic exchanges because it will mm. always become corrupt and yeah. inhuman
0: well, and that seems to be what the conservatives kind of are doing today the republicans they seem to be falling into that into that um right into that that thought that thought process and that group of uh, that group thing there where, are
1: definitely some that that's true of yes yeah yeah
0: I, i've got yeah. to be a lot more now but yeah uh so but, yeah, think we can younger i think
1: there are some younger ones that are like if you're younger and you are falling into that and you're not a conservative christian i think that's a very tempting way to look at it because yeah. it's simple Right. Um, any, any view of the world, which includes virtue, the development of human virtue, and your responsibilities to yeah. groups greater than yourself as an individual, but smaller than the government, that is civil society, mm-hmm. is a complex way to see the world. And people yeah. don't want to accept that. And see, the thing is, we used to inculcate it in people yeah. who didn't want to think of that complexly by having a unified culture where people just absorbed it. You didn't right. have to be that smart, and you didn't have to care that much because you absorbed a lot of these values just by living in the culture. But yeah. the culture is in chaos. What we have right. now is what I think was it Truman who he called it an anti-culture. We don't yeah. have a culture; we have an anti-culture. Yeah, right. Something that tears down the development of cultures rather than has one. And so now yeah. we don't. Have, there's no way for people to absorb a view of virtue and civil society yeah. and so on. So they're not absorbing it, but they're certainly not learning it because almost nobody ever did learn it.
2: Yeah. And
1: so what you have is chaos. And that's right. producing chaos on the on the federal level in government. It's producing it in the in the civil society level, in families, churches, voluntary organizations, also on the economic level and profoundly on the individual level individuals well, because they're meant to be in these connected communities of shared loving yeah and responsibility they're doing much worse as individuals that's how you get the loneliness epidemics and right. rises in anxiety and all that kind of stuff too
0: well this leads into the next question about uh, if some people are just totally bewildered and overwhelmed by all that they're hearing and and mm-hmm. seeing i i think that yeah i think maybe there's a lot of there is a group of people are a lot of christians maybe that are recognizing all of a lot of these things that we're talking about as a really mm-hmm. deconstruction and and yet um i mean you one of the things that we talked about and we're going to do a, an interview with carl truman um and in that interview we in his book the rise and triumph of the modern self he just talks about all the problems and yeah. then he doesn't. And then, and then the book kind of just ends and, uh, he doesn't yeah. give uh, a real solution to And, and uh, I think that's probably where a lot of Christians are at right now. Like maybe we're really good at recognizing some of these problems, but when it comes to finding a solution, it's really, really, really confusing. And, uh, and so we're going to ask him about, you know, what does he think the solution to this problem is? But I guess that that's the question here too, when everything's being deconstructed uh, in these in these younger generations. How are you what are you even supposed to do about that? How how are you supposed to? I mean, it, it is overwhelming yeah. to think about.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think Truman was trying to be a scholar rather than a doctor in that book. And I I did find the book much less satisfying because of it, because I have read a lot of that analysis before. I like the book because he puts it all together and he specifically relates it to the sexual revolution, which I think was useful. Um, And his sections on Marcuse and stuff like that were sections that I hadn't read a lot about. So that was helpful. But yeah, I kept waiting for the book to turn a corner where he's like, "Okay, guys, here's. But I think he would just say, look, I'm a I'm a scholar of thought history i'm not a culture creator yeah. don't look to me for that which i think is fair you you know you can't do everything but yeah. but i think that's the yeah. hardest part when The culture creation this- is, the, is the hardest part
0: you know yeah the the legal uh cases at the end mm-hmm. i i thought that section yeah i i agree i thought at some point he was gonna be like let me fix all this I, yeah I, yeah you would have just thought that that's where it was going and then and then the book just kind of ended and that was it. And I was like, great. I yeah, don't have any idea. What to, it seemed like this. there were some
1: intimations that he's going to write another book and he didn't want the two oh, to be together. I, I don't know. I don't really know. So we'll have to see. Yeah. But So anyway, there was a section we started last time that says, um, uh, like, why is deconstructing your faith seems so attractive? And we did a few of these in the last one, but I want to just review them quick. One is, is that a lot of people are really sophomoric and wholly ignorant about Christian faith, which mm-hmm. is not necessarily their fault. Right. Yeah. A lot of young people just don't pay any attention because because people don't pay attention to information they don't know that they're going to need.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and so like you're a teenager growing up in a church and youth pastors are doing apologetics and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, you just don't pay attention. Like, I, I can't tell you how many young people I know who went to Christian colleges and they had to do like 16 credit hours in Bible and they know nothing <laughs> about the Bible. And they literally took 16 hours of like college credit, but they yeah. just drifted through it because they didn't realize they were going to need it. They didn't they're like now as a parent, man, or now as a Bible study leader, I wish I would life studied yeah. really hard in those classes, but they didn't. And yeah. Andy, frankly, I don't know if there's a way around that developmental reality. Cause that's true just for just all young people.
2: They yeah, just are I so mean, caught up
1: in living their life and in yeah. sorting out romance and work and that to be like, hey, look, you're gonna want to know this stuff later. I just don't find hardly anybody who cares. And it seems to be it,
0: universal. Maybe don't go to college. I mean, don't just stop just going to college just because it's the thing that people do. Like, like I think that that's actually. I mean, a lot of people are just going to college because it's something to do. I like now. I really would love to go get a degree in like history. Yeah, and I think I would like really study at it. But four years ago, if I went to get a history degree, I would have not paid attention to anything they ever said. Yeah, I
1: wish we could kind of live our lives where, um. Where we like, we don't go to college for four years right after high school,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: but we have like 10 hours a week to study for 20 years. (laughs) You know, I think, I think probably people would learn more, you know, but anyway, what I want to say about this first one again is just, I was just want to reiterate, if you're considering deconstructing your faith,
2: Mm.
1: you need to first really ask your question, whether or not you know enough about Christianity to even start to deconstruct it. And the answer is for most people, you just don't. Yeah. Right. So if you, if you say, well, I'm deconstructing my faith because I don't believe it. Okay. But let, but let's, okay. Realize as you're deconstructing your faith, what you believe in is some tiny little piece of Christianity without the whole building. And so you're deconstructing a tent, not a skyscraper. Yeah. And just realize that because what happened, what may happen later is you realize, you might realize that the new faith you constructed isn't any good either. Mm -hmm. And maybe you need to go back to the, to the, to the cathedral of Christianity rather than the tent. Yeah. Right. And so just keep your mind open is what I'm saying. Right. I think number two that we talked about is many institutions have failed people. I think that that's really true. And that's not just the church. Right. I think lots of institutions have failed people. And when that happens, we tend to look to the institutions that haven't totally failed us to do what they do and what the institutions that failed us were supposed to do. So, for example, people, their families failed them. And so then they look to the church to do what their families were supposed to do. The church doesn't do that very well. And so then mm-hmm. they feel like the church failed them
0: too. What I find interesting about this and is that, that – could be a problem. Uh, is that, yeah. What I, what I find interesting is that people uh, – so the institu- people who understand that the institutions have failed them mm-hmm. oftentimes use what those institutions have taught them to deconstruct – christianity which right, yes. is not one of the institutions that have failed them so for instance like hmm. whatever the public school system or something maybe that's failed you and you're right. frustrated with it and so you, you but because it's the only thing you know you use those tools to deconstruct not christianity and just everything else in, in front of you until you have nothing left and i, I just i've always right. found, found that to be weird instead of throwing it all away which I understand why they don't throw it all away and why yeah. people don't throw it away. Why I haven't thrown everything away. I taught in was taught in public schools because if I don't have something to have some sort of framework of, of my existence, that's going to be a really dark place to be in. So mm-hmm. I understand why they don't do that, but it is pretty uh, ironic. And yeah, I think that a lot of this is just a, a problem of, of your intellectual or scope When you don't understand a lot of things and you hear that Christianity is anti LGBTQ and or you hear that the Bible is is not for, uh, you know, transgenderism or something like that. And Mm -hmm. you can look at that and think that that small thing is the entirety of the Bible. And that's what makes up the entirety of all Christian faith. But I think. And then what a lot of young people do is they at 20 years old will take that and that's what they'll they'll deconstruct or construct their new view of Christianity off of. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think a lot of people should just wait like five to 10 years, allow their intellectual scope to widen and to understand that that's just one small piece of a much larger puzzle. And once you understand the entire thing. Maybe, maybe you won't be so prone to deconstructing your entire faith. Yeah. And I think that that seems to be the problem.
1: Yeah. I think that there's a lot to that. I think it's tough for people because, you know, there's some point where you have to say, this thing is too wonderful for me. It's like, it's too big. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, like there's areas of knowledge that I just don't know as much as I would like to know about them. The world is so full of knowledge that any human being at any point now can know less than maybe 2% of all the knowledge there is. Yeah, Which leaves you so profoundly ignorant as you move through the world. And- <laughs> And so, yeah. like, on one level, like, everybody has to say, that question is just too big for me, right? Yeah. But at the same time, everybody has to make a personal decision as to what they're going to believe in. And that's, yeah. that's just a terrible place to be in, right? And so, I think that you're right that, like, on one level, you want people to, like, like, consider not judging Christianity and let it judge you so yeah. that you can grow from it um But I also see that people are like, yeah, but I'm trying to find the truth, and if I just believe this, but then, well, how good are you finding the truth, right? But then, right. if you don't actually seek the truth, you just seek something that works. Are you really committed to the truth? Are you living in good conscience, which Christianity demands you do? Right. So, like, yeah, I understand. I mean, I understand that, but I, th- I think to just start with, like, hey, some institutions have failed us, yeah, and then we turn and we want other institutions to do. What the other – what the institutions that fail us were supposed to do. So I think public school is a good example of this. Public school, school shouldn't be teaching progressive ideology that is anti-Christian. They should be mm-hmm. teaching either neutral ideology for yeah. a diverse society or they should be teaching the truth, right? Because they've right. strayed from teaching certain truths. Now yeah. the church has to do more and teach yeah. all those truths that the schooling is supposed to do, right? In less time. In less time. But mean, meanwhile, the family is failing too. So yeah. the church is supposed to be a pseudo family and do that as well. Right. right. And then as other institutions fail, like government, right. And caring mm-hmm. for the poor. Well, what it does terribly, the church, like people are like, well, the government cares for the poor. The church is care for the poor. Okay. There's a lot of holes in government care for the poor. Because the government isn't very good at administrating it. So the church really does step in and do a lot of this stuff, right? We're going to – we'll give away 700 turkeys this Thanksgiving because these families wouldn't have had them otherwise, right? And so like we step in and do this stuff. And so the church is like becoming this institution that more and more is put on them. And then when the church can't do it, people are like, oh, the church failed. And you're like, well, the church isn't supposed to be the only institution. Any yeah. more than the head is supposed to be your only body part, it may yeah. be the queen of the institutions. It may be one of only two divinely mandated mm. institutions, mm. but it's not supposed to do everything. It's, right, and, and pastors and churches aren't qualified to do everything, like fight right. wars. Like, yeah. there's part of me that thinks maybe there should be a papal army again, but like, generally <laughs> speaking, I think it's a bad idea. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the it's um it, it feels like also it's difficult for the church to kind of do these things like care for the poor and uh, help each local community when it it does feel a lot of times like the federal government is almost fighting against that too, where where you feel like the church Mm -hmm. is having to fight the federal government, which is a huge institution. And still provide for their communities and be there for people in their local communities. It's like an unwinnable war. You're not going to.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let me say a a couple of things you mean that one
0: is just kind of like, there is some
1: anti-Christian bias in the federal government. I think that's true. Yeah. Not just in the courts, but in how the federal government um, works its programs, it has a bias against religious organizations doing good work when it's Mm -hmm. funding them. Right now you might be like, well, why should the federal government fund the church? Well, because the government is taking like 50 percent of human earnings away from them right and humans that can't give that money to the church you know like 50% if you don't think taxes are more than 50% then you need to read books like the real cost of um the real cost of the tax burden and things like that where which cuz like you're not just paying your income tax and your property tax and your
0: sales tax. But yeah, like it looks like Atlas, Shrug- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Like when I do a tree job
1: for somebody, yeah. you're paying like, you're paying like seven or eight different taxes, like it a sucks. full 35% of what I'm charging you is taxes. Yeah. It's not just a sales tax. It's like yeah. the tax on my insurance and the yeah. tax on everything I bought that's equipment. The tax I just paid on gas, which is almost half the cost of gas. The ta- like, there's like all these taxes built into every expense. And yeah. so we're giving more than half of our money to the government. Well, if we didn't give more than half our money to the government, we wouldn't right. have trouble funding churches. And we wouldn't have trouble funding churches, churches, schools or churches, poverty programs or any of those things because people would have an enormous amount of disposable income. Instead, an incredibly inefficient government takes it from us, overspends it by buying votes for itself, by doing programs that don't work really at all, and then overspends so much that we go into a level of debt that produces inflation so that all the money we did have left to give to the church just lost 8% of its value in the last year. And then we wonder why churches financially struggle. It's because the government is choking them by its economic model and its taxation model.
0: Right? And by what I said, I I wasn't just saying that to, to Democrats or anything like that. Like I think it's uh, I think the the way that uh, yeah Republicans
1: the, have expanded the government to buy oh, votes as well. Yes, I mean Medi- yeah. Medicare was it Part D that Bush expanded? That was one of the biggest expansions That's of government ever, and it was yeah. by Republican administration. Totally,
0: yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, but by what I what I meant by all that was just what you were saying was that the expansion of of the federal government is automatically fighting against the local church. There's and yeah. and because of that.
1: And you, and usually we, it has to do now with dollars. The way they make people spend money, the way they take money from people. Like for example, like the fact that they've created a healthcare system that is inflating and cost like 12% a year. Even after yeah. Obamacare it got worse. Like the <laughs> the biggest financial strain I have in running a church is paying health insurance for my employees. Yeah. That's the biggest financial cost of the entire church. Right. Is to get um our employees, like people who minister, access to healthcare. Yeah. Right. And that's the government's fault. It's (laughs) their fault. They've been subsidizing medicine for years, and everything that they subsidize increases in price like fivefold more than inflation. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. And and you know what the second biggest problem is? Educating new ministers. Well, oh, you know how that what that's the other biggest thing in our economy the government subsidizes and increases the cost of. Who would have thought?
2: Right.
1: So yeah, the government's a big problem, but in a way that most people don't understand. They just think, yeah. well, what are you saying? The government's saying you can't preach or you can't have churches? Nope. No. It's slowly strangling all civic yeah. institutions. Right. Right. But the difference is, is that with a lot of civic institutions, the government takes money from people and then gives it back to the civic institutions like they're the good guy. So if we were the girls in boys club. Yeah, we don't get money from donors anymore because the government takes all the money. But then we apply to the government to give us money. And then the government gives us money. So then we're beholden to them, but at least we get the money. The church, the money gets taken away from all of our people and then given to these other secular institutions that usually don't work very well, right? And that our people wouldn't give
0: to. This is another scope problem with young Christians, too, because when you start to talk about this stuff, they view this as this is all just politics and whatever. And I don't think it is. I think I think that what we're going to find with my generation is that they're not going to realize all how all of this stuff has potentially. I mean, I'm I'm a believer in that. I don't I don't (laughs) I don't think America is going to exist in my timeline. Or my lifetime, uh, in some way, or shape, or form, I think there's going to be some some serious problems. But a lot of young believers don't recognize these larger scope things. These, these uh, like what you're, we're talking about, the federal government, and how they're choking the church out. Yeah. They don't recognize that they just say, well, if it hasn't come in today and like shot everybody up and killed everybody, then it's, it's then the government does. Yeah, it's fine. And yeah. it's, and that's not even how like communism worked in the 1900s or like it, it, there's a slow progression that leads up to the, the great ensemble or whatever you want to call it. I mean, yeah. there was a lot that led up to it. And if you aren't vigilant to see what that is, you're going to end up losing all that you have. And and you're not, and yeah. you're not even know how. And so, I mean, yeah. I, I guess that's, that's to this. Whole I want point to encourage you. I
1: want to encourage you to optimism though, Andy and, and people who are listening to, because like <laughs> things go the way they're going until they don't. Right. Is I think Jonah Goldberg is a person famous for saying that the most, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, the trajectory of America in certain ways, is relatively yeah. negative. I agree with that. But things go that way until they don't, right? The United States has a history of snapping back and waking up. And I, Winston Churchill once said, you can always trust Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else.
2: <laughs> that's that's
0: funny.
1: And so, yeah. I mean, I think that there's, you know what I mean? So like, I, there's a point where people go screw this, right? And so we'll yeah. just have to see when that is and how bad things right. are. But oftentimes <laughs> in decadent cultures,
0: hour. what? What? I would just watched the darkest hour about, have you seen that? Winston uh, Churchill? Churchill, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen yeah. it though. No, it's really good. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. Churchill's a favorite of mine. Um, but anyway, okay. We should probably move on. Okay. So four was, yeah. there's a lot of toxic religion out there. We want yeah. to affirm that there, listen, there's a lot of toxic religion out there and there's a lot of people trying to follow Christianity and they don't realize they are producing really toxic religion. I would say that a lot of the fundamentalist Baptist churches in In Wisconsin, would fall into this category. I believe that a lot of those people are really trying to be super godly and follow Jesus, and they don't realize that they're putting confidence in the flesh in such a way as to produce really toxic religion. And so, hopefully, that could be corrected. But if you've run into toxic religion, it's there. Go Mm -hmm. find other religion. (laughs) Like, there's other churches that aren't that way. You were asking a question. All churches are full of people and are going to have a certain amount of dysfunction. They should. Because they're trying to redeem people.
0: Yeah. We were in the car in August and you were asking a question about how much, I think this relates to the fundamentalist, uh, the fundamentalism, but um, how much romanticism can play a healthy role in Christianity in some capacity. Yeah, We were talking about that. And I feel like what the fundamentalists do is they... They do what what I think Ayn Rand did was they completely move into total and complete objectivism where there's no room for anything romantic. There's no room for anything uh, mm-hmm. like that. And that I mean, but you you were asking that, And I think that that relates to this and that I think one of the mm. ways that you're really going to push young people away from Christianity is getting rid of of romanticism completely and 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 the christian interaction with that because some some of the greatest all i mean my argument all the greatest art ever produced besides kanye west was uh (laughs) produced by was produced by christian romantics and they you know you could all of the best art ever yeah i mean i guess in the sense of
1: romanticism with the broadest possible definition Right. Yes. But like, was, there's yeah. there's more there's more in the woods than just the trees. Like being yeah. able to see like feeling and expression. Yeah, I think that that's I think artists I mean, are by definition in that sense romantics. romantics. That they're looking I, for what what more is there and how to depict it for the human soul.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about like I was thinking of C.S. Lewis or Jarrow Tolkien or some of the painters of the Renaissance who maybe maybe like I think of Caravaggio, but who knows if he was actually a Christian, uh, but. Just some of these these guys who I think did a better job of using the romantic tactics to display Christianity. Mm-hmm. And when you get rid of that, I think you get rid of all of the young people because <laughs> young people are generally more... They're full of passion and feeling
1: and should be. Yes, exactly.
0: And I think that that's important. And I -hmm. I think that we've – the church has deconstructed that. A lot of these fundamental churches are deconstructed. Yeah. And so I just want to
1: be clear when I say there's a lot of toxic religion out there. I don't want to just pick on fundamentalists. I think there's a lot of that in fundamentalism. I think that there is a progressive church toxic religion. I think that there is an evangelical big business celebrity pastor (laughs) toxic religion. Yeah. I also I mean I've talked to Muslims and I I know that there is imam like like Muslim toxic religion and like everybody yeah. who does religion does toxic religion and yeah so in secularism they do all kinds of toxicity. they just don't call it religion, right yeah like any institutionalized group of people forming around a cultural or mm-hmm. romantic notion that has an ideological core creates yeah. a community and some of those communities are going to be wreathed in a some kind of toxicity. Yeah. Right. Hmm. And sometimes you'll leave one toxicity, like the fundamentalist, you can't, women can't wear pants toxicity. And you'll jump over into like evangelical churches, big business, like the pastor is like a God or something toxicity. And then you'll jump to like, well, let's like, accept everything that's toxic about the culture, progressive church toxicity. Right. And Hmm. instead you have to find health. And I think for that, you really need to go to Jesus. Right. And how the apostles depict him and seek to find like a, a true expression of that. Right. Anyway, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of toxic religion that is leading a lot of people to move in a deconstructed direction. yeah So five, I think you brought this up people are just totally bewildered and overwhelmed by all that they're hearing. There's yeah. just so much information out there. And yeah. most of it is by people who don't know what they're talking about. And mm-hmm. most people can't tell the difference between people who know what they're talking about right. and people who don't.
0: You just yeah, listen to what smart. sounds good. Yeah. That's that one's the the worst. I mean, even in these podcasts, even in the first one after we got done, I was like, "What the heck, man?" There's like a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot here, and I think especially for young people who are, I, I think generally speaking, people who are deconstructing their faith are mostly young. Yeah, that's even more intimidating is just all the information all yeah. of the everything about all of this from i mean and and if you got some pastor at your local church and then you have like a princeton phd professor telling you two different things right it's going to be really difficult to justify ignoring the phd professor at princeton right and listening to your local pastor you know Right. And you don't know about the other Princeton professor that says the
1: opposite of the guy that you just heard about. Right. So yeah. I don't, like how many people know about Timothy George, who is a Princeton professor, who is a conservative Catholic and mm-hmm. makes argue, like almost nobody. Right. And so or like yeah. we talk about civility, people are like, yeah, everybody's at each other's throats. Well, Cornell West, who's a, rel- a little bit of a radical, um, mm-hmm. even sometimes a little bit Marxist, but also not. Um, he's an African American guy, and he and Timothy George, this like conservative Catholic guy, go all over the country talking about loving each other, having commitments to free speech, like huh. seeking the truth together, helping each yeah. other each, understand each other's experiences by committing to friendship and dialogue. I mean, these guys are like incredible at that. And like, what I actually hear is that people who know about Cornell West, who are conservatives, they demonize him because Cornell has said some like pretty lefty like wacky kind of stuff but yeah. he's also like if you get the feel for him he's like this incredible poetic romantic provocateur and so yeah. like he's very playful and he says all kinds of crazy crap because he's yeah. trying to expand people's experience and knowledge of yeah. others because he believes huh. building that will create a more humane and christian society but he's a very yeah. deep christian believer i mean he's gonna be i think he's gonna be in heaven you know yeah and so like but no you people don't know about the sane voices because sane voices often aren't very popular
2: Right. Yeah. And so right. you
1: get this kind of like the the democratization of voices has made a culture uh, like our culture just a huge shouting match and it's like yeah. a mind numbing noise and people struggle with it uh, and so they just say screw it I'm not going to believe in anything too specifically.
0: Yeah. And, and so remember, we started like, a podcast. To, yeah, and remember what, like
1: like what what the devil says in the scripture letters is remember okay. hell is the kingdom of noise. It is not our job. In another letter, he says, it's not our job to argue. It's our job to muddle. The work of devils is not to argue against Christianity. It is to muddle the truth. It's not to use reason. Mm. It's to cause us to believe things for weird reasons and just say, well, that's reality. We can't possibly think about this. So noise is like creating noise so that clarity can't be achieved is like the tactic of hell. And Mm. it's also like um, you can see this in like a uh, brave new world, right? Like, Al, like Huxley believed this too, that like you, that the truth isn't taken from us by censors. It's just a needle in a haystack in all the noise. So there mm-hmm. was a book years ago, I think it was written in the nineties called amusing ourselves to death by Neil Postman. And he said there were two visions of the future, like in the 1950s, there was Orwell's view that the censors would take knowledge from us and so we wouldn't have access to it. Yeah. And there was Huxley who said, no, there'll just be so much noise. You won't be able to tell the truth of the lie. Yeah. And yeah. he said, my book is about the fact that Huxley and not Orwell was right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was like written either in the late eighties or early nineties in the age of I mean, television. There's it's it's the it's, same 5,000% it's more the case now.
0: Right. I don't know if you've read Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. I read I've that. Read, some, I read some of it. I don't think I've ever read yeah. the whole thing. It, it, it I mean, it, it's, it explores some of the, like, I mean, it's similar probably to Brave New World. I haven't read all of that. But yeah, that but, you're just giving yeah. people to their pleasures and to yeah, whatever they right. want. And that's what destroys the country rather than. And like Fahrenheit yeah. 451 is also about like the right. government was burning books too. But like. Right.
1: In Bradsbury's vision, he was putting together, in a sense, Huxley. See, uh, Huxley yeah. really believed that too. You can see that like in 1984 that like the government gives you all pleasures Orla? and you are totally subservient to it and yeah. it also changes the language of everything so that yeah. you can't figure out what the truth is. Yeah. Bradbury believed that if you gave people pleasures and you gave them because remember like this is so funny because it was like written in like the what 50s or 60s yeah. and he he imagined people where whole walls of their house would be televisions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you're like, that you oh. can interact with and talk with as if they were your family and right. you'd buy new walls into. Your, yeah. It's yeah.
1: yeah. And like, now you're like, Oh wait, instead of baking the whole wall of TV, we just made little glasses you put on yourself. Right. Yeah. Right. You're like, Oh, huh. But like mm-hmm. he believed that even in the presence of those things, you would still have to destroy knowledge by burning books. Yeah. And the question is, I'm not sure that's true. Really. I think you can make people so sensual that they would never read a book.
0: I, yeah I agree yeah and I think that you would burn them just to get rid of them in case
1: yeah but, I, but people would be on up in arms about it
0: yeah, yeah I, it depends I on think how it'd be much easier
1: than it is in Fahrenheit 451 I don't know that you'd need the firefighters yeah.
0: the firemen. Well, it, it depends on how depraved your society is it seems like that society in, that, in Fahrenheit 451 is pretty depraved pretty gone, and so yeah. when he saw this book or when he got a hold of the book I think he, like whatever these books were he was like Interested in it because it was something that he had never seen before, not because mm-hmm. he wanted to read a book. And then he became interested in reading a book and yeah. then he read some of the Bible and stuff. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah it's interesting. Um, your, number six. Yeah. Number number six. Yeah. yeah. Exclusion Exclu- is a huge deal psychologically for young people. Yeah. This is. And people of certain temperaments in everyone. Yeah.
1: So yeah. it's a inclusion is ex- is exceptionally important for young people because it's part of their development. Right. When young people start breaking away from their family through psychological differentiation, they're asking like, what is my tribe? Who do I belong to? Who am I accepted by? Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? And so belonging becomes like the primary function of their life from like, you know, 11 Mm -hmm. to 13 to like into your 20s at least. And so people are like. Literally, like psychologically and neurologically driven to be accepted. And yeah. that's not just true of younger people on that more acute scale. More mm-hmm. broadly, human, pe- human beings are interdependent. We want fellowship with one another. We want to be accepted and justified publicly. And yeah. so we want to fit in. Right, And that puts a lot of psychological pressure on us to go along and get along. And when going along and getting along is going to church and believing in Christianity, people do it. Yeah, And when going along and getting along is rejecting Christianity and not going to church. People, people do it do it, yeah. and part of being a spiritual person or a person who cares about the truth or who cares about god is mm-hmm. that to, to transcend those instincts to belong to god first
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and then to navigate belonging out of it but yeah. we don't want to be excluded and to the, so that, to the extent to which you believe in, in christianity that believes that psych- christianity is psychologically healthy that a historic christian sexual ethic is correct Mm -hmm. Right. And that there isn't a division between science and theology. And you hold to those things. There's a lot of cross pressure against that. Yeah. And a lot of people just have a really hard time. And then if you have on top of being young or whatever, you have a disposition or a temperament that's like high neuroticism, doesn't like to fight, isn't super disagreeable. You're just Mm -hmm. kind of a go along, get along person. It's a, then it becomes like even harder if there isn't yeah. a subcommunity, which is one of the reasons why robust churches are really important because there's some temperaments that they just don't even know what they would even do mm-hmm. isolated by believing a certain thing. Yeah. That isn't broadly accepted.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what we do about those people. That's, we, yeah. Uh, we
1: build really robust churches, a very rich community so that people can choose one community over another, which is what most people are doing every- anyway. We'd like to think they're all good philosophers or theolo- want to be theologians, but most yeah. people are choosing one set of people for another set of people.
0: Do you think – I do find that some of these community-focused churches lack in in biblical theology pretty uh-huh. pretty bad, like in ways that I have questioned whether or not they even believe the same Bible. And that's, that's where yeah. I think – I think that's where people run into. I mean, what's the threshold of of the, theological doctrine that you have to hold to? As well, a you have to
1: believe that um, Christ Jesus died for your sins, and God raised him from the dead so that you could be saved. I mean, there is like in some ways a very a very small portion, but I think part of it is just like churches tend to excel in things that their pastors are good at temperamentally, and so if you have a like an academicy arguy pastor like me, then you tend to have a lot of like. Maybe rich theology or more specific doctrine. Yeah. But if you get a or feely shepherdy like yeah. pastor, you just get a more feely shepherdy kind of church. I mean, it's, it's and yeah. That's one of the reasons why multi-staff churches, at which you hire staff pastors with different abilities, mm-hmm. can make for a more robust and more complete set- hmm. group. I think.
0: Yeah. You know. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's move to. Do, do we want to do? Se- I mean, we talked a lot about seven. Should we? Yeah. Just do seven eight?
1: arguments for deconstruction are rooted in expressive individualism. So if you've already taken on expressive individualism as your the way you see the world, then deconstructionism will make more sense to you. Yeah. Right. And so sometimes you be, you believe in expressive individualism because it's just everywhere. And you've just absorbed it. You don't even realize yeah. it. And so in your mind, that is. The baseline for reality and then yep. you hear about christianity and you hear about like deconstruction you're like oh well deconstruction is obviously right right when you don't realize that you have a baseline that could be wrong
0: which is i mean in one way it's, it's helpful because when i see somebody who was totally in expressive individualism totally part of that and now they're a really solid faith and have a solid faith and have really given up a lot of those belief systems it makes me believe that their faith was was really genuine and that their, their their conversion to christianity was really genuine uh rather than there is a lot of young christians who just bring that into christianity with them and they don't leave yeah. anything and and so
1: yeah and it, it, I, the way i want to counsel people is like, you know, you those people are people, a people to be loved, right? Like we, yeah. like you, it's so one of the things that I do with younger people like that is in every conversation where we might, I might not use the words expressive individualism, but in every conversation I'm contrasting. Yeah. Jesus, the Christ and his view of what it means to be a human being with the expressive individualist view of what in like, so that they can feel that decision in contrast in every decision that they make, because ultimately they have to absorb Jesus Christ and who he is (laughs) and how he acts and how he thinks and what he's like until they believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And they've been appointed not just to believe in Christ, but to suffer for him. And right. Like, like to really inhabit the worldview of Jesus. Yeah. You know, and that just, that really takes time. So I don't, I don't go, Oh, that person's an expressive individual; at heart. They're not a Christian. I say, okay, we need to work on the soil with that person so that the seed of Christ can grow so that it doesn't yeah. miscarry. But like, yeah. I look at it as like caring for a woman who's pregnant. Like, what can we do to make sure that this pregnancy comes to term? Yeah. Not, well, this isn't going to work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. because listen, you and even you and I, uh, and everybody we know who we believe are like integrated Christians have their expressive individualism moments. And there's an it, argument it's to me made sin, that, it,
0: right? Yeah. It's well, not all of expressive, yes, absolutely. I've been realizing that more and more, but also not all of what was in expressive individualism is totally, completely wrong, right? Like, yes. there's some good parts to expressing your sexuality when you're married to the person of the opposite sex <laughs> and you do yeah. it in hell do like there's some great. Right. you are uh, ex-
1: supposed to delight yourself in yeah. finding delight in others and yeah. the importance of the self in that sense is impo- is important yes
2: yeah that's sure. true
1: but it, yeah. remember it, it's not individuality that we're talking about it's individualism
2: which individualism. is the
1: the individual is ascendant over other things that it should be integrated into yeah so individuals individualism is yeah a pejorative right so yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um okay without so eight. A, eight the church has oh yeah the church has not been able to teach the faith compellingly enough yeah especially as schooling and media have overwhelmed the inputs of culture into modern people i agree with that um mm-hmm. But the question, I think a lot of a lot of Christians are wondering, what's the right way to combat that? Is it to get right involved in the schooling and the media, or is it to just keep to just keep preaching from the pulpit and allow for whoever wants to come to come to the church and and learn that way? I guess that seems to be more of a, a logistical question on how exactly should we do this because i've seen christians take on the media route which is what i'm trying to do also Mm -hmm. and do a really really terrible job at it and just i think that most christians do a a bad job at it before they do a good job at it but uh what's the i don't know what how do you what what do you do here because it's not like we're going to create a well I want to, but it's not like you're going to create a multi-billion dollar media industry or company or something like that as a Christian or, you know, there's a, not a high chance of that happening, you know? Yeah.
1: I don't, I mean, outside of Christendom, when Europe was sort of like, at least culturally Christian, right? Um, I don't know that Christians have ever lived in a place where they controlled the media and art. Hmm. They've always been a countercultural group and we have had to teach that that's what we are. We will always be a countercultural group. And you have to accept that about your life, right? But I also think that people just don't understand how media and technology have increased their capacity to disciple or shape our children. Mm. And the fact is, is that YouTube is raising your children.
2: Like there used to be this
1: joke about homeschooling, like you homeschool your kids and people say, well, why don't you want your kids to go to public school? Don't they have to learn socially? And they're like, Mm -hmm. and and so homeschooling Christians used to say, you're right. How will my kids learn how to be disrespectful to their parents, cuss and swear and have premarital sex if I don't send them to the public schools? Right.
0: Right. But the thing is,
1: is there's the answer to that now. The answer is, well, they'll learn it on YouTube in your house. Yeah. Right. And they'll learn it while they are supposedly learning other things. Mm hmm. Right. Like watching like makeup look videos or like, I don't know, fishing videos or like
0: whatever. Because it's stuff, crap pops up on the, on the, um, the sidebar that has all these suggested videos. People get into, in high school, you know, yeah. Right. You're watching everything.
1: And if, and, and the research of Robert Epstein has demonstrated that Google is intentionally moving people towards ideologies that they like by excluding search results they don't want people to see. Yeah. If those people show by their searching that they're susceptible to having their ideas changed, right? So Which people are- like me, I don't see it in my searches because Google knows that I have my mind made up, right? But for mm-hmm. people who don't, Google is using like their search algorithm to shape your beliefs, right? And shape your votes and things like that. Now, the idea that they're doing that in the search engine but not in YouTube strikes me as crazy,
0: mm.
1: right? Um, I think it's I think it's ex- just like exceedingly likely that that's happening in YouTube that that the algorithm is increasingly going to move us. Oh yeah, especially quote undecided people, right? It has your kid's right. birthday, right? And so it's going to move under quote undecided people in directions it wants them to move. And something like seventy percent of YouTube videos now are the suggested next video. Yeah. Right. So it's not like people search around for what they want. It's They watch something that they want and then they just watch the next video YouTube gives them, right? Well, that means YouTube is controlling, right? It's not just holding videos. it's, It's deciding for you what you see and how it shapes you and it can order it the way it wants to. So the movement from one thing to another feels slow. Do you think that's
0: wrong ethically?
1: I think it's wrong because they lie and say they don't do it. Maybe if they maybe on, if were, they like, were yeah, we 100% open about it, maybe an argument could be made that it's not immoral. But okay. Google has like routinely lied about this. And, um, you know, <laughs> I just think that that's really.
0: That's immoral. Yeah. And Epstein, yeah, and like in an
1: interview with Joe Rogan recently, he said he was, he talked with some district attorney, like not just attorneys, but like attorney generals of states. Yeah. And this guy said, you're going to die in an accident. And six months later, his wife died in an accident, like a freak car accident where she was hit by this huge truck. And then the truck the truck that she was in disappeared. He didn't get his property back and it was never looked at forensically. So like there's some like really scary crap around some of this uber yeah. large technological stuff. And I just think like I think one of the biggest thing, deals is, is that if you're a young adult, one of the things you're going to have to do is A, realize you're being manipulated. Sometimes that's like the first step. Like yeah. TikTok, like TikTok's a good example. Of this China has designed the American algorithm yeah. to put foolish and idiotic things <laughs> at the top, so that Americans would watch irresponsible, yeah. foolish, stupid, underachieving people. And admire those people and behave like them. And then in right. China, it's all yeah. people who do their homework, it's, people who yeah, go to bed at education. the right time, people yeah. who do socially responsible things and are becoming yeah. good people.
0: And right. their hope down is that... 8pm or something like that, I think, like yeah. all the social media in But still, yeah.
1: who they show you on TikTok, like yeah. the algorithms in China, you're yeah. going to yeah. see the kind of people the government yeah. wants you to see, which is supposed to make you a better person, right? And in yeah. America, they're explicitly this making it to degrade the quality okay. of the person. Because in the long run that's how china wins right and like americans don't even know that they just give and their if, personal information they watch what comes up they laugh they go oh that's so funny and they are literally degrading themselves and so the first step is just to know that if To you know that America there's a that, massive government psychologically shaping you to be an idiot they're yeah. trying to make an idiocracy out of an entire country and sets of societies. Cause I think, I think that those algorithms are also that way in Europe as well. Yeah, Right. Yeah. Well, it doesn't and listen, if I was trying to comment in government, why wouldn't I do that? Right. Right. And so you exactly. gotta wake up. Okay. And then secondly, yeah. you gotta have the courage to like get off some of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, just like just last night, I mean, I'm 45 years old and I'm like a relatively accomplished person. I just wanted to play video <laughs> games for a couple hours, and not read a bunch of stuff in the evening. And like every day we're deciding how to use our time. And what we're going to look at and what we're going to read and how we're going to be shaped and whether we're going to give in to sensuality and become more sensual people or whether we're going to become more soulish people. And we have to quit kidding ourselves about that because if we choose sensuality, we will adopt expressive individualism, which will lead us to deconstruct our faith so that we can be free and accepted and everything can be nice and we won't have to face any conflict Hmm. because that's what the human heart is always going to pursue because we don't like – being insecure and threatened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so Jesus said that people don't want to come to the light. That's one of the the next points. Yeah. I mean, pretty, pretty obvious. Yeah. We need to remember that not only
1: do other people not want to come to Jesus, but even to a certain extent, even after we come to Jesus, we don't either. Right. Lewis has a section in the letters tabulators where he says, remember when you're tempting the Christians not to pray, they already don't really want to pray.
0: Yeah,
1: they don't want to come in full honesty before God Almighty. That's mm-hmm. terrifying, mm-hmm. and so they play at prayer. They parrot talk, right? Hmm. So it's not just like the whole human race doesn't want to come to like what what the Apostle John calls the world, right? The people who don't acknowledge God in their existence. Yeah, we are we are part of the world. Yeah, in that sense, and hmm. part of overcoming this is in our hearts determining we want to live in the light. We want to know the truth. We want to see it as God sees it. We want to think his thoughts yeah. after him. We want to know him as we are known. Yeah. And and we have to realize that that's not natural to the part of us the Bible calls the flesh. Mm-hmm. The reactive, sure. instinctual, self-serving, driven by fear part of us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I agree. Um. And then this is point number 10, and then we'll move into the final Couple of points here, but this is that uh, without norming institutions, people become susceptible to conspiratorial theories. Uh, I think this one's very true, and I've seen this a lot in the last two years with people who claim to be Christians, and it is it is exhausting trying to talk to these people because they they think things that are insane, and if you try to say something that's more mainstream or just maybe not like, like I was with some people the other day and uh, the really conservative Christian and and one guy was getting frustrated at me because I don't think that there are tracking devices in the vaccines, <laughs> the COVID <laughs> vaccines. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's tra- tracking devices in there, man. Uh, and they were like, I don't know. There was just such a tolerance for this type of that type of idea that there, there is no evidence for it at all that there's tracking devices. And yet everybody in the car was more, more would believe that more than they'd believe anything else. And I yeah. think that this to the point where it's like, well, I don't blame them for believing it because the government and the, and all these institutions have completely failed them. But that's pretty yeah. insane to me. So,
1: yeah, I listen to Joe Rogan's podcast with Jordan Peterson which was really yeah. long, and man, I, I wish I could Four. listen to it something faster than one point eight. But yeah. like the the credulity by which Joe believes that the all of Judeo Christian religion is a misunderstanding on psychocybin mushrooms,
0: yeah, like in is... in
1: shamanistic trips of like yeah sh- earlier shamanism, strikes me as like nutty. You know, and like, I understand he had like a ego crushing experience on DMT that he really appreciated and all that. But like, that's not what happened that like, there's no evidence of that. Like there would be some mention of like psychotropism in some of the ancient literature. Right. And and there's, you know, like it's reasonable that like, I mean, we don't know how the witch of Endor connected with Samuel, like in the Bible and maybe. Sure. But like the idea that the whole thing is a linguistic misunderstanding about mushrooms is crazy.
0: Yeah. Written through like thousands of years and different authors and people who didn't even know the, like personally know the other. Yeah. And then just like
1: out of nowhere, it all came from mushroom trips. And then all all of a sudden the mushroom trips got so stigmatized that they disappeared. And he got, and he gets this from like a guy who studied the Essenes who were like kind of a crazy cult. And mm-hmm. believes in all kinds of crazy crap like that you could wash your sins through like ritual bathing. And they had some re- weird sexual practices like the Essenes believe some weird crap. You can't normalize what they think like. But the thing is, nobody knows who the Essenes are. Nobody knows what the what the Dead Sea Scrolls really are. They just know they're yeah. like old Bible scrolls. Like I talk wow. to my own kids who had heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls and they were like, you know, I was thinking like my friends, they were thinking like, maybe the Dead Sea Scrolls are are right and not the Bible. And I was like, do you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are? And he's like, well, no. I was like, they're scrolls of the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) That's what doesn't mean. Yeah. I was wondering where that was going. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yes, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are some other Essene literatures and writings. They're basically like a buck nuts, crazy Gnosticism. Yeah. But mostly they're Bible scrolls. And the reason why yeah. the Dead Sea Scrolls matter is because they like they show us that before the birth of Christ, the Old Testament is virtually exactly the way it is now and it hasn't been corrupted. That's why they're yeah. so important, right? Yeah. Now it's true that like the non commodity documents, which were another big trove of desert manuscripts that were found, which was all Gnostic literature, you could say, well, maybe the non commodity documents are right and the Bible's wrong. Okay, at least that's an argument and you have your like history straight. Sure.
0: You know, they're most people don't know that those exist, and right. yeah. yeah, they're
1: not, and they're super wacky. But look, at least it's an argument, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, it's so I hear a lot, like you know, like that Jesus is a rehashed Egyptian, like <laughs> Egyptian god fertility myth, and that like the pict- Catholic pictures of like the Madonna like we actually did a podcast on this I think a while back about like heresies around Christmas and whatever and I broke down like where that that stuff really comes from anti-Catholic hatred and like this this like Scottish Congregationalist pastor guy that like sort of pretended he was an Egyptologist it was really weird and he said a bunch of stuff that was historically false but like Christians fall for that crap. All kinds of people fall for that crap. They have do no do idea what they're talking about, but they're like, oh, I get it. I Because in their mind, they're like, there's some cabal of corrupt people out there who are trying to make us believe stupid crap. And if we,
2: if we right. can say we
1: know that, then we're free. Right. And that's not I, anything like true.
0: Another argument against this, these conspiracies and things like that is... I've in in the shrooms one and the drug influenced one. Uh, I've been around people who are on these drugs and who are influenced by them and nothing they say is th- th- as complex as the Bible or the things that the Bible portray or represent, or yeah. even one chapter in the Bible. There is a story of John Segatowski, He used to be on this podcast. Yeah, I was and- just
2: thinking of
1: him.
0: Yeah. We told the story before, you-
1: but you should tell it again.
0: Yeah, he like he did acid or something like that when he was in college and he was sitting there and uh, he started to kind of have an out of body experience where he kind of like he was sitting on the couch, but he started to zoom out and and then he saw the whole planet and he saw all these different people on the planet and different strands of light going from one person to the next person. And he came to this great, huge revelation that everybody's connected. And that was his like, that yeah. was his huge, which, is, which is literally
1: everyone's experience when they take these psychotropic yeah. drugs. Right. right. It's, yeah.
0: It's like the dumbest thing. Everybody knows that we already know that we're all connected yeah. in certain ways. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I you remember him saying
1: that he was, he was saying, it's not like I woke up. And realized that revelation was wrong. I realized that it was like pretty obvious.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do appreciate how people. So like I can see like for a guy like Joe Rogan, like you look at like how he was brought up and that he was like in a fighting culture. And like, yeah, then to to have an experience like that, that creates a kind of ego death where you like Mm -hmm. have this sense that we're all connected. We're not all just fighting and competing with each other. We're all connected with one another. And it like opens his mind. Like I could see how that like was a really profound and I think truly spiritual, that is psychologically spiritual experience for him. Yeah. And I think probably highly beneficial for him as well. Yeah, sure. Like, yeah. I'm not going to say that it was like just totally bad, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, Joe, that's really not that deep though.
2: Right. Like you that's feel it deeply, yeah. but the
1: question is, okay, but we're also not all totally connected. So how do we adjudicate the difference between being separate and connected? How how are we both connected and not connected? How are we not one another and yet connected to one another? Like those are all the interesting and difficult questions that religion is trying to work through. Not the the obvious reality of that we are connected. Now, I think like these hallucinogenic drugs can help you really feel in a psychologically powerful way. We're all connected Mm
0: -hmm. in a way you would have like blown off before. Yes. That's yeah. the point to these conspiracy theory type things is that, especially ones influenced by drugs, is oftentimes they're huge generalizations, mm-hmm. like like the idea that everybody's connected. This mm-hmm. is true. And the Bible explores in which ways we're all connected and what relationships we have to each other and which ways that we should talk to each other and how we should interact with God. Yeah. There's there's no specificity to an, uh, uh, an acid trip, really. You're just finding out. Things that I and most people understood when they were kids and -hmm. you're feeling them deeply, like you said. Yeah. But there's it doesn't specify what these things actually really mean. It just tells you things like.
1: Yeah. I I haven't been on a a hallucinogenic trip. Yeah. So, I I mean, I.
0: I haven't either, but I've been around a lot of people who have. And yeah, me too. I I haven't heard anything really. I haven't heard anything great. Yeah. I would say
1: in terms of the like incredibly beautiful lives. Mm-hmm. live by people i see around me i see no indication that hallucinogenic drugs increase the beauty of people's lives and how much they actually go out of their way to really love other people
2: yeah. well right. for those
1: other people's goods right i just don't yeah. I'm, and so i'm not saying that they don't you don't have real experiences and i i have all i have all kinds of openness to the possibility that there's clinical use for some sure. of these drugs to help with like like um PTSD and people who have had like profoundly traumatic experiences. So I'm not like an anti anti hallucinogenic drug person. I'm not sure that they should be. I I actually can see them growing as like a pseudo religion. I think I think Peterson Peterson alluded to this, but I think it's correct that shamanism is becoming the new religion. Yeah, that we're going back even pre paganism to shamanistic practices. And I think therefore these psychedelics are going to be a big part of it. And I think that's where things are going right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah,
1: and Because sexual licentiousness and no definition around sex and sex as being fundamentally connected to spirituality was a big part of this shamanistic pre- like ancient, ancient world kind of stuff and hallucinogenic uses and shamanism and so on. And it just Mm. seems like there's this convergence around some of these things and i think it's because they were um you know how like in the ancient ancient world people didn't understand their world as well as they wanted to right and then we went through like all this learning and we got into the modernist period and people felt like they could know all the stuff that people knew and then there was this explosion of knowledge and we knew so much that we don't know anything anymore right i wonder if like humanly speaking That makes us feel almost like the ancients did when they didn't know anything. Now they knew so little they didn't know anything. Now we know so much we don't know anything. And so what we're looking for is these like little peace practices that like have some validity in themselves and you don't have to know how everything works for it to work. So like you have this experience. It tells you something that's real. You can like really feel something. It matters. But you don't have to make sense of the world because you can't anymore. The world doesn't make sense. Just like in pagan times, it didn't make sense. I wonder if like there's something to that, that, like we're going to get like a new paganism, a new shamanism, because we're in this place again where the world doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, I think that is happening. I see it happening. I think instead we should
1: turn to the God who has spoken and shown himself in the man Jesus Christ, so that in the incomprehensible world of suffering and difficulty and knowledge Mm -hmm. beyond our capacity, we have a place to start. Yeah. We have all the, the word made flesh so we can yeah. understand the complexity of all things. I think Jesus yeah. is the answer literally, but yeah. I do see why people are drawn to those other things.
0: You know? Yeah, I, I do too. And okay. So, um, why have Christians been so bad at confronting this problem? Uh, I wrote, I feel like nobody is trying to really fight back against this in real ways. Um, it feels like the people who in media and, um who just have the loudest voices and i'm talking mainstream people not not university not elitist stuff i'm saying when i'm talking to my friends they're gonna th- there's just so much out there on deconstruction and there's not much out there feels like trying to combat this idea from christians i feel like we just kind of just are like well well, this is just a phase or something like that. I don't think mm. it's really a phase. I think that people are going to stay true to their deconstructed ideas. Mm. And it doesn't feel like a lot, I think a lot to... will.
1: I, I, you know, after church last week, I actually sat with a couple for a couple hours at a restaurant. Yeah. So I met with a couple where they were both 19 and getting married and sort of like not really anywhere in their faith right now. And then I met with a couple of their 30s that just had their first child who were from totally secular backgrounds in California. And wow. it was really interesting how similar they were in a certain way that like one of them was like the, the, the couple in their 30s from California was like, yeah, we just didn't have any religious background. Mm-hmm. But it did dawn on us that the world has gone crazy, like the secular world has gone crazy. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to like look some other places. And so they, yeah. they, they read some like really new agey stuff. that I would have been like, oh, don't read that person. But it was (laughs) like, they were like, well, but it got us interested in spirituality in general. Mm -hmm. We didn't think it was the answer, but it was like, okay, there's more than just the physical crap around us and living and dying and buying stuff. Yeah. And then they realized they wanted to have a child. Well, they, they like met on OK Cupid. Both of them said in their profiles, they didn't want to have kids, (laughs) but then they got married and like nature started to take over. She was kind of like, well, wait, no, maybe I do want to have a child Mm -hmm. at least one and he was like oh well, okay <laughs> it was like yeah and it was like they began to reconnect without knowing it to their nature yeah and so they're connecting to their nature they're realizing secularism has, has kind of gone crazy and they're like well what and then they started to realize that like Christianity spoke to their nature yeah and it also showed that secularism was a little crazy and so they've been listening to my sermons for like 6 or 7 months online and they just started coming to church And they're like, we're not Christians yet, but like, man, we're looking for something like this. We sort of believe in Jesus. We want to connect with God. We believe there's a God out there, right? The other couple is just kind of like, yeah, these these young kids are like, yeah, we don't really have faith. But then she's kind of like, yeah, well, but you kind of like, you're kind of from like some kind of religious background. You kind of want to get back to it because you realize like we don't really have anything else that works. And they have secularism. They just realize it doesn't tell them anything. Yeah. You know, other than be selfish and be for yourself, but they realize they're about to get married and they don't want to be abandoned. They don't like secularism. Isn't a great philosophy for like long-term conjugal union in which you raise children. Right. You know, it's like, and they kind of realize that. And and here's these like almost empty slate, like adults who are young. And they're like, well, maybe we do want to consider religion a little bit because man, we don't know what the heck else to consider. That's productive at all, you know? And so I I do have some hope about that, that in some ways people have to realize what's, they have to like get sick of the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. the question is, are they going to get sick of the world before they give up on the world? And, and I think that. Because I think there's I mean, I, I've I've wondered there's either going to be like uh, a lot of people coming back to their faith or coming coming to their faith in those ways that you just explained that those people did. I think that's either going to happen or I think there's going to be a lot of suicide in the in the next 15 to 20 years, because I think that this these philosophies that the world are, are, is teaching right now only leads to really those two places. I, either you get to a dead end and you're like, I need to turn around and figure mm-hmm. out where I went wrong and, and it could lead them to Christianity or you get to that dead end and it's just so hopeless that you you think it's time to to be done. That's, I mean, that's kind of yeah. what I see. And I hope for, for people to reevaluate and try some different things and go, go a more spiritual route that will hopefully lead them to Christianity. But yeah, 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 I can see it. There's a bunch of different ways
1: people are going, but I do think gloom and depression are clearly on the rise as well as anxiety.
0: Right. And And I think at some point
1: people are going to realize that this isn't just more people willing to cope with their anxiety, but we actually, our culture is producing more anxiety,
0: more anxiety. Yeah.
1: And that if that's the case, then what was happening before people? Well, what was happening before that Mm -hmm. that wasn't happening? And it might be interesting to see what happens. I can see ways where God could bring about like really great revival. Yeah, I can see faith just just declining in American being a small remnant.
0: Yeah. Yep. Uh, and, and so, okay. So the question, how can Christians, uh, co- combat the idea of deconstructionism or, or how can we combat deconstruction? is uh, one, you have pursue a more robust, less naive faith. How can people do that? I mean, that's, yeah, that's I think finding a
1: mentor, going to a church that preaches more than just little feely sermons, I think, um, I think that's important. Um, I think like being willing to read a little bit or if you even if you're like you've been so affected by like YouTube and stuff, you can find incredibly good content online. Start spending some of your time listening to thoughtful people. Um, I mean, hopefully if they're listening, if you're listening to this, like you want to do that. But I would say start to listen to people who are doing less commentating than we are, but are doing more constructive thought, right? And like so start listening to like and there's like there's just thousands and thousands and thousands of great stuff. Like it's just on something like YouTube.
0: Would would you They're say like, like more exegetical, biblical uh building up your like is that what you're saying? Like more Oh,
1: I do think a big part of this would be to get to learn the Bible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think That's that the good. Bible is still the
1: greatest repository of divine and human knowledge, like knowledge about the human being and knowledge about God put together. Right. Mm-hmm. And showing itself through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Christ, who is the focal point of faith and the shaper of a redeemed humanity. And so mm-hmm. I think studying the Bible is incredibly important.
0: Yeah. Right. for um, most with other people. Most too. people I are going to need
1: to do it with other people. That's right.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because I, I think that's one of the problems that I've seen. You have deconstructionists who start to deconstruct, then they start reading their Bible and then they just throw all of their deconstructed theology into what they're reading into the Bible or in the Bible. And then, and then you get people like, like what we've seen on TikTok and things like that, where they're like, see, I told you God was genocidal. Look at this, look at this passage. And you're like, yeah, "Yeah, I don't even think a lot
1: of those people read the Bible. I think that they they get those from online and then they go and they read those verses. They're like, Oh my gosh, that's really here. And they don't read anything around it. And they don't know the context. They don't know if God's approving of it. or disapproving of it. And so on.
0: Is there something to the translation, too? Uh, I would say read a more literal translation.
1: To begin. Um, To study the Bible, sure. But if you just haven't read the Bible, then like, didn't you love the New Living Translation? Because it was like so readable. Yeah,
0: Yeah. it's really readable. But I'm thinking of like the message and the passion. That's not even really the Bible. I mean, come on.
1: Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I would recommend those, but the the New Living yeah, free, um, it, Translation is a very free, non-literal translation, yeah. and I think it can be very productive for people like reading bigger swaths of the Bible.
0: Yeah, it's it's good. I like that. So like
1: if, if you're one of these folks that like, if you have read the Bible, you read like a couple of verses until something feels right, and you're like, oh, yeah. that's an interesting view thing about God. You need to add to your Bible reading, like reading as much as you can in one sitting. Like sit mm-hmm. down and read the whole book of Philippians. It's all of four pages. <laughs> right? Yeah. And don't stop and be like, oh, I'm going to stop on this verse." do Don't stop. Keep reading. Follow yeah. the line of thought all the way through. And then tomorrow you can go back and start in chapter one and go slower. Yeah. But Read the whole book through. There's some yeah. basic Bible reading, things like that, that could be incredibly helpful in forming your worldview. Yeah. Because <laughs> when you read it's one on verse the, at a time, you never get the big picture.
0: It's really interesting, too. I mean, when, when you read through all of Galatians or all of one of Paul's writings, it's not – or or John or Peter or whatever you're not. uh, It's just interesting to see how he how he deal how he thinks through things. I, I like Galatians is probably one of my my favorite book in the Bible, and it's when I read it from the beginning to the end, I feel like I have a, f- a full picture of how not to distort the the gospel. And it's really it's good. I, I think it's it's good for people to do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so two. I think, think
1: encouraging to think leaders to take thinking time off to get advanced degrees we're going to need more people and better spokesmen that can face this stuff on its own terms what that's also going to mean is some people with iqs higher than 110 are going to have to go into the ministry right there was a time in american history where some of our best and brightest became missionaries and pastors and if we're going to have a robust intellectual life in christian faith that can help people with these questions and problems we have to have more pastors like that yeah and um that's just isn't, isn't necessary. Uh, the three, yeah. Number three under this is don't fulfill the prophecies of deconstructionists, right? There are certain things that people who are doing this deconstructing are saying Christians are like. Know and what those right. are and don't do them.
0: Yeah. To and the let's, and to let's, which they're not Christian. Right. You know? Yeah,
1: yeah, right. And I think right, so yeah. <laughs> like, being sure about ideas that you shouldn't be that sure about, like being willing to listen, that Christians just don't really listen when the other person's no. talking, like those yeah. kinds of things, like. Don't fulfill those like or like hating gay people, like treating gay like Christians, for the most part, don't hate gay people. I think sometimes they do hate the gay um, ideological movement, the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. ideology movement, but they don't hate gay people. But sometimes they treat they don't treat gay people very well. They don't love them. Right. Right. And I think that like that's something you can fix. You don't have to fulfill that prophecy. Right. Yeah. And it's not not just so that you can reach deconstructionists, it's so that you can actually love LGBTQ identified people. Right. right.
0: So and I think that's Christ, which is yeah. the goal here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I think talking about reconceptualizing our faith or that as we grow up, we need to come to a more mature version of the faith. And to tell that to like middle schoolers. Like I do this talk with middle schoolers. This is why you're gonna lose your faith in high school. And I basically say, you've got a fourth grade conception of Jesus, you're going to move into a ninth grade conception of the world, and yeah. your conception of Jesus isn't going to fit that. You have to reconceptualize Jesus again in yeah. more maturity. He's still the same Jesus in a lot of ways, but you yeah. he, you have to complexify your understanding of Jesus so he, he meets your more complex understanding of the world. If you don't, right. you're going to leave your faith behind, not because it's wrong, but because you're taking an immature version of the faith to a more mature situation. Yeah. You have to yeah. update – Your theological understanding, right? And I think that we need to recognize that in how we teach kids and youth group as well, right? Fifth is deconstruct deconstruction or criticize critical theories. Yeah. It's okay to believe that some things should be deconstructed. And it's okay to realize that there are tools in the critical theories to look under the hood of some things we assume. Right. Basically, critical theory is all about breaking up your assumptions. Are your assumptions yeah. right? Maybe they're wrong. Right. That's good. But if you don't criticize the criticisms or deconstruct the deconstructionism, right. it will control you. Well, and, eat, and, and you because, have to ask them. Because Go it's ahead. an assumption. Right. Yeah. Like if you're like, are assumptions right? right? Let's use critical theory. Well, critical right. theory is a set of assumptions. And if right. you don't do that, then you have stars in your eyes about these critical theories that they don't deserve. Right. Yeah. You think they have authority. They don't have. You think they can tell yeah. you truths they can't know. Mm-hmm. And you end up following them like a fad rather than using them as a tool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what I was going to say. So
1: it's like, it's like worshiping a sawzall or something, right? It's a tool. Yeah. It's not a god, yeah. you know?
0: Right. Okay. And yeah. 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 Six. Uh, don't get drawn emotionally into edge deconstructors and get people around you to help you not get emotionally possessed.
1: Yeah. Um, don't. yeah, there's clearly a typo there. Yeah. So like, it's easy to get what, drawn what to, to I don't know. It's easy to get drawn into this conversation around deconstruction and get drawn in emotionally to it and feel like you have to answer all the questions or all these objections are right. And the thing is, is that, especially if you're younger, intellectual maturity takes time. Yeah. Like, why does, why is God so hidden? Why does he allow suffering the way he does? Why did I have this personal experience? Why isn't the church better?
0: than it is right now. I just started reading this book last night about Jefferson and Hamilton and just their relationship and similarities and differences between their lives. And the, these guys studied so much. They studied for, I mean, Jefferson went into, to become a lawyer and all these things. And he took, he just took extra time to continue to study uh, Mm -hmm. more time than all of his peers. And uh, now I want to say Monticello had a library between seven and 12,000 books. I can't remember the exact number now, but that was, that was a lot. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it still is a lot. Yeah. I mean, that many books that'd be a lot, but yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think yeah. that there's something to that. I don't think that a lot of young people, re- I don't think we understand education and we think that it's, it's a, a means to which you can get your degree, uh, rather than this is a way to think about the world and you should yeah. be learning and thinking and studying. and.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I, I, agree with that. And I think that's part of this. I'm also talking about the emotional experience of doubt though, of like, of like knowing that a belief that you have is incomplete and in, in actually inadequate, So a lot of our beliefs about Jesus aren't just incomplete. They're actually inadequate. Right. Yeah. And so what do you do with that? Well, but it might take you five to 10 years to grow in maturity of that belief so that it really becomes adequate. Right. Mm-hmm. And in the meanwhile, you're dealing with seeing in part, like it says in First Corinthians 13, we, we see in part, we prophesy in part, someday we'll know fully as we're fully known. Right. Like yeah. even our conceptualizations of Jesus are very limited. Right. And so that's, that creates a lot of emotional discomfort. And so you can say, well, maybe it's just all bunk. It's all stupid. And secularism is, is clean because it's simple. Right. Yeah. Chesterton said, like, the, like, irreligion looks good because it's like a circle. Yeah. And it fits. The problem is the circle is really small and doesn't right. take in the world. Right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so it's not that it isn't simple. It's just, it's, it's just too small. And to make things big enough, they're going to have mystery. There's going to be areas of your thought that are, are really inadequate. There's going to yeah. be difficulty. There's going to be doubt throughout all the history of the church. There has been this concept of the dark night of the soul, this feeling of profound divine abandonment as mm-hmm. part of the development of our faith. Well, yeah. most people, when they experience that now, they just pitch the faith. They don't understand that this is part of emotional undulation and maturing in the faith and how God draws us to himself by emotionally withdrawing and allowing us to struggle by ourselves in a certain way so that we have to decide, will we worship God, even if he doesn't even feel like he's there at all? Mm -hmm. Like, why are we really choosing him? Right. And so these are difficulties that you have to work through for maturity and they're painful. And so when we when if we get drawn in emotionally to deconstruction, and we go, "Oh, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do that. I'll deconstruct my faith, and then I'll be free, and then I can really, right. I can you know be affirm, affirming of gay people, and I can pursue psychological health in a medicalized way, and you know it'll yeah. all be so much better." And it's not; you'll just be a smaller person. Yeah, you know, and yeah. so just don't. You have to realize that you have to just not get drawn
0: into that, right? Yeah. And then the last no, thing. You were going. Yes, yeah, right. Uh, face. I'm just kidding. What you're going to face. Yeah, know what you're going to face. Like, yeah.
1: in Christian faith, you're always going to be in the minority. Yeah. In Christian faith, you cannot count on being accepted by the world. Yeah. You have to be what's called, psychologists called differentiated. That mm-hmm. I'm not anxiously connected to you in such a way as I require your approval for me to be myself. Right. That. That action of being differentiated, where I can be myself without your approval, though I would like to enjoy your approval, I do not require your approval. And yeah. I'm in a I'm in an active relationship of loving you, mm-hmm. whether or not I'm getting affirmation or approval from you, right? Christians have to be fully psychologically mature in a differentiated sense. Otherwise, we will always be in relationships of chronic anxiety, to quote Edmund Friedman. And yeah. So one of the, so in, by being a minority in the world, it forces us into a kind of psychological maturity that normally we wouldn't want to pursue because it's difficult, but our minority status forces it upon us, or we have to become broken, insular and toxic in our religion. Right. Yeah. And so godliness forces us to move out where we can love other people who don't approve of us when Mm -hmm. we can love our enemies we're actually approaching something like spiritual maturity and becoming something like Jesus. And you need to realize at the beginning, it's like Jesus says, look, if you're going to build a tower, you need to figure out the beginning. If you have enough money to build it, whether or not you're going to finish what you started. If you're going to go out and fight somebody who has 20,000 soldiers and you only have 10,000, you better figure out whether or not you have a way to beat him. Otherwise you better like negotiate your surrender. Now don't fight the battle, lose, and then negotiate the surrender. Right? Yeah. So if you yeah. come to Jesus, you need to realize what you're getting into so that when yeah. these things happen, they're not a surprise. And so right. therefore they're not as emotionally overwhelming. And you can also recognize what am I going to need to
0: do to succeed? Right. Right. That will lead you back to reading your Bible. <laughs> Th- yeah. That leads you back to just reading your Bible right. and understanding what Jesus taught. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Seeking good spiritual shepherds, finding a good church, all those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. Right.
1: Um, how can we having detect- deeper de- Christian de- conversation? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How can we detect deconstructionism when it is being preached? I think a lot of churches have fallen into this. And yeah. So tell? there's a
1: lot more deconstruction, this kind of deconstruction, what we're talking about right now, which is rooted yeah. in deconstructionism. The critical schools yep. of thought that flow out of literary theory and do have yeah. Marxism as their grandparent, but aren't necessarily Marxist. Right. Yeah. And so I think Christians need to realize when they're hearing it from their preacher. Now, I would listen over a period of time. Like you might hear like one thing in a sermon. Don't be like, oh that one thing, oh, you're you're going woke or you're going Marxist. Like you know, preachers have to like talk about a lot of different things and explore different kinds of thoughts and like what is true in wokeism and what is right in critical theories. But also you need to realize when the person is is utilizing the assumptions of deconstruction Mm -hmm. and what they're teaching, right? And so I took these five from an Alyssa Childers video. She's done a bunch of stuff on like woke church and deconstructionism in her YouTube uh, channel. I think she's pretty good. Um, And here are the five that she laid out and I would say these are pretty good, right? The first is a lower view of the Bible, that the Bible isn't treated as authoritative as the word of God written. It's treated as like um, a high work of human creation as something that like we should deconstruct Um, And sit in judgment on rather than see how it judges and shapes us. So you'll see a lower view of the Bible. You'll see feelings over facts. People will say, yes, this this quote seems true, but think about the lived experience of these people, right? Now that one's a little touchy because um, lived experience or feelings should be a gauge to force us to make sure we're not being flippant in our thinking, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, when I think about, the, like, the lived experience of, like, say, black poverty in certain inner cities, mm-hmm. that will affect what I think are facts about whether or not people are trying hard enough in my judgment. Yeah. And then, like, I, as I connect more with the sense of what it's like to be them, mm-hmm. I'll be like, wait, this thing I thought through, I was kind of flippant about it. I didn't really take into account what it was really like to be them. And so I I left out some facts and I didn't think it through clearly. And so I got to the wrong answer because my emotional process in my thinking was narrow and self-centered. By accessing yeah. this other person's lived experience, their emotions, it helps me realize that I was thinking more emotionally about myself than I thought I was. And I need to relook at the facts. Right? Hmm. Yeah. When so when emotions reopen something for us and we realize we've been flippant. Empathy, lived experience, emotion, and other people's feelings are super important. Mm-hmm. However, those don't make the decision for you. Other people's feelings aren't facts. Yeah. And when people start to say, well, because so and so feels this way, it's true. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, when you see feelings meaning, like, so you have a fact and the feeling contradicts something that really is a fact,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and people go with the feeling they're deconstructing. That's a, like just be- hallmark of it. Because is- it, the logic has started to revolve around power yeah. rather than truth. And power is being expressed through ethical language rather yeah. than philosophically truthful language, right? right? And you can see that start to turn, right? That the sense yeah. of what's good is more important than what's true.
0: In right? other because- words... Yeah. Yeah. Facts don't care about your feelings. Ben (laughs) Shapiro.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But my fear is that when people get their drinking liberal tears mugs, that it makes (laughs) them more flippant and they hide behind what they perceive to be facts more and they don't listen to what they should be hearing from other people. You know what I mean? Like when I listen to when I listen to certain people's feelings, oftentimes I don't change my philosophical view, but I realize that my approach to them is inadequate.
0: Yeah, it's right. a confusing question uh, <laughs> the whole facts and feelings thing cuz I'm like my my tendency is to be like man shut up about your feelings they are not yeah. real and 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 mostly in this society in this culture, I think it's been heightened a lot. I think if I lived in a different yeah. time period, I might be more more open to feelings and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I've seen like thousands of times throughout my life how how people feel about a certain situation or topic is completely the opposite of what the actual factual evidence is to that yeah. topic or thing. And yeah, you get you reach. I mean, you reach a point where you are like, come on, this is ridiculous, right. and so. How does how would Jesus interact with that? I I don't necessarily know yet. I, I'm not sure.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I think when like people like Ben Shapiro say, "Facts don't care about your feelings." What the main thing that that like that's a prophetic statement. What he's getting at is, yeah, don't manipulate me with your statement of your feelings and your experiences mm-hmm. as though that in itself can override reality. Yeah, and shape reality really. for everybody else because that is a manipulative egoism. That even if it comes from an experience of pain for you, it's still inappropriate and illegitimate for you to think that you can shape the world with it. It's
0: incredibly narcissistic. You have to – it's just – yeah, it's – yeah. Yeah.
1: However, the critical theorist would say, yes, but if a person who's in power says that about other people's feelings, they can easily blow off how those feelings are connected to reality because they've come up with a narrative that they call facts. Yeah. Right. That makes. And that's like, you know, that can be legitimate, too. So it requires judgment. The problem is, yeah. it's like, nobody wants to engage in discernment and judgment. It's really hard.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. What I mean? So, yeah, yeah. I understand. that. So, I, I think I, so like,
1: when Ben Shapiro says facts don't care about your feelings, when he's when I know that he's speaking against this, like, I'm going to say my feelings and that's supposed to rule the day because yeah. I am I feel like I'm oppressed. I, I'm totally with Ben Shapiro. When yeah. I see that being used by people to not listen to other people and the, and the people who are like, I'm drinking the liberal tears and it's just making them more right. close-minded and yeah. more naive yeah. and like, Angry like of, of, and a inner- narrower understanding inner. with less wisdom. I think, oh, this yeah. is now, this is hurting you.
0: Yeah. Right? right. It's
1: basically like a vaccine. Right. Right. Like it vaccinates yeah. you against a certain thing. But right. like, it could also have some side effects if you're not careful.
0: Yeah, it's really cringy you know. and stupid when somebody is bringing to the table uh, something to a conservative that maybe is legitimate, and maybe they're using too much feelings and too many too, too many feeling words. But what mm-hmm. they're saying at their core is legitimate. And you have a, a conservative yeah. who will be like, "Yeah, well, facts don't care about your feelings." And you're like, "Dude, you're just putting you're just trying to put a Band-Aid over a gushing wound." There's some truth to what this person's saying. Yeah. You need to think about it and not just use that as a stupid little band-aid because yeah and it's certainly not
1: the way i think jesus would want us
0: Right. Yeah. Like, like, we're supposed say- to,
1: like, <laughs> Jesus is very I, explicit that we're supposed to use yeah. gentleness and respect, yeah. even as we're giving reasons for the hopes, the hope that is in us.
0: Yeah. I thought you were going to say that's not the way that Shapiro meant for it to be used. Oh. <laughs> then he went to yeah. Jesus. And- I don't know if it is or
1: not. I see, I, I when I've seen I, Ben Shapiro do question answers, I think he does listen to people and I think he yeah. tries to answer the question they're really asking, even if yeah. they ask it in a way that's like rude and mean. And so yeah. I don't think he uses it that way most of the yeah. time. Right. I mean, right. everybody's going to fail. Sometimes you're going to have right. a bad day or a bad, a bad question. But Trusting I think for the most part, it. he listens to the questions being asked and he tries to stay on yeah. topic. Right. Yep. And so yeah. I I think his use of it as well. I, the problem is always right. with our protégés. Often, yep. you know, like it's how yeah. they use stuff. We use. Oh, yeah. OK, oh, we should yeah. move on. OK, that's so three essential, doctrine. essential doctrines are open for reinterpretation, like the virgin birth, atonement, resurrection of Jesus, sexuality, hell, etc. I mean, I think that's key. Like you go to a church and like they yeah. treat like his. Very central historic Christian doctrines, like they're no big deal, and they could they need to be reinterpreted. Yeah, I mean, just be careful. That's a sign. Yeah, that this deconstruction has entered into the. I would the say the most popular one in
0: that is hell. I I, I see this. This is, seems to be more common uh, among young people is the idea that hell doesn't exist at all. Yeah, or maybe just, maybe second to sexuality i've want yeah no i i don't know if it's i don't know if the sexuality thing is i feel like more pastors just don't talk about it i think re- the sexuality thing i think a lot yeah. of pastors talk about how hell in the greek is is the word that they use for like the dumpster trash outside of the walls of jerusalem and so we can't really know if that's actually a real thing and mm-hmm. it's i just, we did a bunch of podcasts on hell on this podcast, and I, I think it's, I think hell is real. And I'm so sick of people saying that it's not real. I, that's, that to me is really detrimental. I mean, I yeah. Yeah.
1: I, I, yeah. So, um, I don't know if I would put people who believe in annihilationism in that category as strongly. What you'll generally get is views of like, um, yeah. un, like, uh, universalism or like God wouldn't, you know, God's all merciful and all merciful being just couldn't punish people. You get this kind of like, I'm going to use one thing in God's character to override the balancing thing that I don't like because I don't want to grapple with the integration
0: of God's character. Yeah. Use the one thing, redefine it. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, it's very frustrating. Yeah. Universalize
1: it and then make it override everything else in his character, like his moral seriousness. Right.
0: Which is another immaturity in your, in your scope. I think that goes to that as well. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, All right. And so well, number, is- number
1: five is, do you want to read number five?
0: Uh, yeah, I can read it. The heart of the gospel shifts from sin and redemption to social justice. The gospel of the cross gets lost in the gospel of the kingdom.
1: Yeah. That's I true. mean, people start talking more about social justice and yeah. sometimes psychological health.
0: Yeah. And they yeah. stop
1: talking about things like sin, redemption, repentance. Right. Right putting sin to death, facing the flesh and so on. I think like as a pastor, I talk a lot about psychological health, but within a language structure where I'm trying to compare what it would look like to be a a healthy person and how Jesus pursues it through repentance and faith and so on and how that interacts with the new priest class of secularity, which uses psychology as its main priest craft, right? Mm -hmm. That's different than somebody saying, preaching a sermon and, you, and it's just a bunch of psychological how to's. And what's really the most important thing is your psychological health, mm-hmm. as opposed to how you grapple with the God, man, Jesus Christ, the God who yeah. is there and how by relating to him redemptively through repentance and trust and receiving him into your, into your mm-hmm. soul and, and being one with him in Christ and dwelled by the spirit and how that can lead you to certain dynamics that will lead to psychological health and social health and social being and social justice downstream from grappling with Jesus the Christ himself i yeah. think when when the gospel of the cross gets lost in social justice talk that's a good indication that somebody's losing their way
2: yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i think I
1: mean, so if you if you hear one of these one time that's not like some reason to leave a church
0: mm-hmm.
1: but when you start seeing this cluster start to show up yeah then be really careful. It may be time to go to like a less exciting person who doesn't wear as expensive jeans church and go somewhere where somebody is a little bit better at preaching the gospel. And if you're like, yeah, but like those people aren't like as cool or whatever, listen, listen to your sermons online. Then like go to church, listen and get what that person, what God is saying through that person, even if it's not super sexy. And if you need, if you need more in-depth Christian teaching, listen to stuff online like this right you know but and be also with the people like, of god willing to hear the word of god actually spoken as what it actually means
0: yeah i would say also don't try to don't pick your don't try to find the coolest usually christianity is full of really uncool just like i mean not i'm I, I guess i'm not trying to say christians aren't cool but th- if, if you're if you're if your community is picked by who's cool and who's not cool, you, you might be missing out on a lot of other good parts of different communities, which one could be theological depth. Yeah.
1: I think that I coolness find. is a I think that coolness is a kind of vanity for the most part. I think it's yeah. 80% vanity, 20% substance. Yeah. And so I think as people mature, they care a heck of a lot less about it. Yeah. I mean, cool is really just a word we use for socially acceptable and approved by younger people. Yeah. Right. It's because we, yeah. we don't want to actually say, I desperately right. want your approval or here, I'm giving you a signal of my approval. We say, oh, that's cool. But what yeah. we're, just, what we're just saying is like, I'm signaling my approval. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. when people mature and they want to grow in virtue,
2: they, they stop about caring
1: them. about that stuff. Right. And when they stop because caring about it, they don't keep up with it. When they don't keep up with it, they don't do it. And when they don't do it, yeah. they don't look cool. So you kind of cool want somebody who's not virtue.
0: cool. Right. Oftentimes what's cool if if that's what it is, is what the young people think it's oftentimes not virtuous. And that yeah. means that you don't that you probably shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> you shouldn't yeah, be I mean it's fun if somebody
1: like, like like I'm trying to think about like how I do I like I try to keep up with a little bit of the lingo and stuff yeah. and you know yeah. I'll look at this or that and like try to yeah. be like in the same century, you yeah. know. But for the most part, the less I care about that stuff, the better pastor I'm gonna be.
0: Yeah and i think the more respected people i think people will have more respect Mm -hmm. i think that they generally will have more respect but okay so we just made it through four pages and 1700 words (laughs) in these last two episodes um this yeah this is of of notes yeah this is a lot of stuff and i know deconstruction is not something that's going to be going away anytime soon i think this just going to continue to get more and more popular (sighs) But if you yeah. listen to this and you want us to go more in depth on any of these points or any of the things that we talked about, um, just, you know, send an email or, or let us know um, because there's a lot that we talked about. So and we yeah. no way we could totally break down everything in this uh, in the in the camp of deconstruction. But I think this is good introductory. Yeah. Uh, two podcasts to this whole problem.
1: Yeah. If I was going to narrow all of this down for somebody who's listening, who's a Christian, mm-hmm. I would say, don't get anxious when you're talking to somebody going through deconstruction. Yeah. Let yourself be a calm presence and trust that Jesus has answers for this and that it's not your job to fix deconstruction. Yeah. And as a person, instead of deconstructing your faith, grow a hundred percent or 500% more curious about your faith. Sure. Instead of like asking all the critical questions about what's wrong with it, just learn a whole lot more about it. Yeah, Go a whole lot deeper and yeah. then see a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, what questions remain and what the structure of those questions are now. Yeah. And I'm not living in the tent of my assumed Christianity, but in the real building that is the actual faith. And now that I've actually learned what Christianity is, now what questions do I really have and what's their structure? I, mean, yeah. I really think those are my two pieces of advice. We're a non-anxious presence to people who are struggling
2: mm-hmm.
1: and questioning. And there is so much we should curiously pursue to learn about our Lord yeah. before we, in a pissy way, start deconstructing things and asking questions that may not even be good questions and that almost certainly yeah. aren't.
0: Yeah, 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 I agree. Um, and I think, I mean, I think that's good. I think we're... we're well, we, I can wrap this thing up if you're watching this on YouTube or whatever, or Facebook, that you could watch the sun come up out of my window. We woke <laughs> up at 630 in the morning and now it's light out and there's snow first snow, snow of this part of the year, I think. Right. We got um, a little bit. No accumulation. Really? we We have some here in minnesota minneapolis but we're further north um all right well if you like this podcast make sure you like subscribe share this with your friends follow us give us a five-star rating leave us a review and we'll see you guys in the next one goodbye